The scientific revolution starts now. But when it comes to my own writing, I, I write when the inspiration comes. And, really? And some days it's there, other days I feel like doing something else. That's um, really Most that's really days I have to do... Huh? That's really different than most people I've talked to, you know, because we've been just asking everybody who's written books, like, what their process is like. And that's, yeah, say I more about that. Process. So do you just end up staying up for hours and hours sometimes and just writing for long stretches? or it, That can happen. Sometimes I can wake up at three in the morning with an idea ringing in my head and I, and I have to write it. So I leave my bed, come up to, to, to the office and then I write it. There are days I wake up and I don't feel like writing. So I, I don't, I do my work and sometimes I pursue uh, a hobby in evening hours. Um, and there are days that uh, something is just kicking my butt saying you gotta write that you gotta write that right now you gotta do it and and then there's hardly time to eat to sleep uh, but i don't have a process i don't have a routine uh, no no I, i'm always going with the flow just sort of trust the muse yeah just yeah and uh, uh i know that for some people if they just go with the flow they end up not doing anything uh, so they need a process, they need structure. Um, I, I don't have that. That only happens when I need to do something that um, that uh, the diamond is not pushing me to do. When I when I when I have to do something that's not part of my my path, not part of my trajectory, um, something for somebody somebody else, for instance, mm. and 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 that uh, happens regularly, of course. Um, but when it has to do with, you know, what I'm supposed to to be doing, no, there's no structure, no process necessary. What if, what if you get struck by an idea in the middle of like a deadline for something else? You know, you run a foundation and you have something, some meeting in the morning or something. Are you just you just give first priority to the work, to the bigger long term work, the book, or do you well, just? Let ideas go sometimes, or how's that? How do you navigate? Because I think that's the benefit of having a day, like a routine or a structure, is that you always make time for it, and then you know that way it won't ever be in conflict with other things. I'm sure that's the right thing to do, but <laughs> that's not, not not how it happens with me. No, if uh, if that that idea comes at three in the morning, and it comes with the right words, because the idea I can recover, but I may not be able to recover the words. Uh, so when it comes, you know, like formed already, and I know that this is the bullseye, this is how it has to be, then I'll leave my bed at three in the morning and I'll go do it, even if I have a call or a meeting at eight in the morning, and then I will not sleep, and then I sleep the next day or the day after that. Mm. Okay, um, but and there are those days, um, you know, lazy Saturday morning, that. Uh, I just feel like sleeping out and I stay in bed until 12. That that can happen as well. I think it's the the conserved idea is that you have to give it first priority. Like these really long-term projects, whether it's you're willing to drop everything and tend to it because you have an idea or you schedule it, in some way you have to put it first on the map or it'll just never, ever get done. If, if it's always getting swept away by the things of daily life, it'll just never, ever happen. Uh, I... The, the risk of 
not getting a book done it, it never happened i mean i i never had that that thought the struggle is um the struggle is to listen too much to the diamond and and neglect everything else to get it done that's the risk the risk that i will not get it done it, it's it's impossible i mean i will not be left in peace mm. uh, I, all, all kinds of crap will happen to me my psychology will go down the drain i'll, I'll start having anxiety uh, uh, uh maybe physical issues uh i will not be able to do anything else uh it, it, it's like a hot iron ball that comes up through your esophagus and you have to spit it out so it's like you saying the risk is that you never spit it out when no <laughs> that risk is not there <laughs> i think the, the charge that out uh, otherwise i'm gonna die if i don't spit it out you know how much of your time do you spend reading reading Mm. Oh, I read a lot less than I used to. Um, I think two books a month now, which is very little. Uh, I used to read a lot more. Papers are still I still read science papers because they tend to be short, and they have very compact language. Jargon has this benefit. If you don't know the jargon, it's a piece of crap. But if you know the jargon, jargon is very helpful because it, it, you know one word can replace a paragraph. Uh, so science papers tend to be like five to eight pages, a lot of graphs, sometimes equations, very, very condensed information that is much easier to go through than than a tome. Um, so I don't know why I've been reading less now, except for technical papers. Is there a direct line between the reading that you do and the writing that you do? Because when as we're working on this book, uh, I, I'm finding myself at places where I realize that I haven't read enough on a certain subject, and then I have to set it aside and then go and read and dive into the history and figure out what these pieces are and how they relate to each other. And only then can I go to the next step and be like, okay, now I can tell the story effectively. You know, all this, I don't know why it is like this with me, but all this management that you relate, you know, the strategies, the structure, what you do first, you know, the steps you take in order to be able to be able to write. Somebody else takes care of that for me. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what it is. Um, um, I just call it the diamond. It, it's a metaphor, of course. I don't mean literally a spirit looking over my shoulders, but to something deep in my mind that's not accessible through direct introspection uh, does this stuff for me. So by the time that impulse comes to write a book, all the material I need is already in there. I have already read this stuff, not because I was planning to write a book, uh, but because, I, I don't know, I, 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 by the time I start, I will have read everything that I will need in the process of writing. It has been like that 12 times now. So I think there's enough statistics. You know, if it happened the first time, it's like got lucky. Second time, yeah, really lucky. Third time, well, that's a lottery win. But 12 times, no, there, my, I'm probably dissociated from a part of my mind that's doing all this stuff that you're, that you're talking about um, without my ego awareness being, you know, having access to it, being, being privy to it. So it, it has always been like that, even uncannily specific stuff, uncannily specific technical stuff. 
um, that uh, I get interested in reading. And I don't know why, I just get interested in reading. And then a year later, that's a linchpin in the book I'm going to write. Uh, has happened many times. And you don't have to go back to it or or dig it up or try to reestablish your connection with that work? Usually I do after I have written the book, Hmm. just to make sure that I'm not misrepresenting or misremembering something. That's part of the due diligence. But that's easy. The book is written already and then you go and reread it and you check your sources and you check your citations, check your quotes. So I do that at that stage. But during the throes of writing the book, no, no. It, every book I've written, I never had to think about it. It, it just emerges. <laughs> it, I don't think about chapter structure. I don't think about title. Well, sometimes the title just comes, but I, I don't think about the structure. I don't think about... The, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. Um, do the chapters when come I out think, fully or like fully formed? Are they already structured yeah. to begin with? I see. By the time I start writing, yes. But before I am even I'm even thinking about writing the book, like the three years between 2020 and 2022, those three years I was completely dedicated to Essential Foundation day and night. Now I'm like 10 hours a day instead of 16. So it's, it's a healthier balance now. But during those three years, I did nothing else. All day, I didn't write, mm. but I notice in hindsight that all these ideas that I'm writing this year in two books, they have grown and acquired structure while I was busy with the, that, that, those other things mm. during the shower or in those moments when you wake up before you leave bed or when you sort of daydream during a meal. So it, that, that stuff was happening under the surface for for those three years. And, and then this year, because uh, I had pom- promised to my publisher, now I'll, I'll deliver two manuscripts this year. When I set to write the first, I'm just typing. I'm a typist. It, uh, I'm, I, I'm not, no longer, th- I mean, I, I'm not thinking about structure. Uh, it went so far this year that uh, the first book I wrote this year, which is ready, it's in production. Actually, production already started, but it will take another 10 months to publication because of all the brick and mortar marketing you have to do to get shelf space and it takes 10 months but um it went to the point that i wrote the entire book without thinking about chapters i didn't write chapters i didn't write sub chapters i just wrote stream of consciousness then i came back and i and i sort of uh, divided it in overall big chapters nine of them that uh, i could give a title to and the rest, I, I gave it structure by leaving an empty line between two sets of paragraphs, just to give the reader a little bit of a clue that something came to completion and then I'm going to start something else. But there are no subsections, headings. and <laughs> I put chapters because it's required. I need to put a, a, a content page. So you need to structure it in chapters. But I didn't write it in chapters chapters was uh, after the thing was written i just figured out okay how do i partition this where do i put a boundary and i say this is one chapter and this is the next uh, but if you read it when it's published you will see that um, say chapter four is about panpsychism and chapter five is about idealism and chapter three is about physicalism but if you read it 
you will see that I talk about all three of them in every single chapter. Mm. And I go from one to the other, go back uh, as if I were talking to someone. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I did it because that's how it came to me. And I, I, I've, after 12 books, I've learned that uh, you don't fight the diamond. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I wonder if that's a huge part of our problem is just it's our first book and we almost feel like we need to put every idea we've ever had into it for the last 30 years, essentially. And it's like that's, this. That's a big mistake. Right. Right, I know, and so we I, there's a lot of fighting that, and like like dis like having to recenter the focus and realize like this isn't our, our last book; it's just our first book. And yeah, you will if you have that mentality that you're giving your final word mm -hmm. on the subject, it must be complete, and it cannot have any sentence that you might like to rewrite mm -hmm. later on. If that's your goal, you will never finish it. You yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely something. I feel like. I think I know that you struggle with that in particular. Well, it's less it's less that it's more that we set out to write this book about the the physics and then I realized that in order to to tell the story of why this kind of perspective is important and actually it's kind of funny because the argument that we're making is that a materialist perspective is important. And the argument that I'm making is that the materialist perspective at some point in the recent past disappeared. And I had always pinned it to Michelson Morley, where I was like, okay, Michelson Morley, they find that there's no ether, Einstein rises. And then we started talking to people and it became obvious that that was a much more complex and nuanced story than that. And so I've basically, in the process of writing this book, had to go back and educate myself about this so I don't write something that's uh, trivial. Because I think that it's a much more complex story. And I think that it strikes at something that's very, very deep in the human psyche which is this battle between materialism and spirit that has been with us since the earliest texts of the ancient Greeks. Like this is, you go back to Pythagoras and he's like the numbers. It's the numbers, you go back man. To Parmenides, <laughs> it's there too. <laughs> and so it must be something that's even deeper. And so I feel like there's this, there's this uh, duality in in minds that has persisted for as long as people have been writing their thoughts about nature. And so I didn't know that. And in order to be able to write about it, I had to go figure it out. And that's what I've been taking most of my time to do because I'm like, there's so many people and they all interact in these delicate ways. And you want to be able to trace the ways that their ideas are passed from person to person and how they mutate and the ways that people either take things on or abandon them or their spiritual callings that push them in one direction or another direction. It's a work of history. It's like seeing the beautiful tapestry of how the society at the time shaped people's scientific inquiry is just absolutely mind-bending yeah like I, I just i think that i get really enamored with just with with learning by reading the original texts and by looking at the history and that draws me in and so it's this constant battle to be like okay well how much do i need from this in order to be able to generate the the idea that is necessary to connect me to the next piece and so it's very much a living it's a living process it's not something that i'm like i have figured all this out i'm gonna write this book i'm like let's figure it out and as we figure it out write the book and, you know um, i'm probably the worst person in the world to advise you on a process for <laughs> writing because i have none um but I, I, if i can contribute something to your thinking it would be this 
pay attention to whether you are doing your research to give context to what you want to write or to give you what you want to write. In the latter case, you're not producing anything new. You're just rewording. And if you find yourself doing that too much, you, you're off on, on the wrong turn. Um, but if you have an original thing to communicate, but you need to couch it in historical or philosophical or scientific context, then yes, then you should do a lot of reading. Um, but that's, uh, there are a lot of authors out there, and I know because I'm the publisher of two imprints, so a lot of manuscripts uh, uh, land on my desk. A lot of essays land on my desk because I'm the chief editor of everything Essential Foundation does. You see often that people start with an original idea and then they get lost in their research and they mm. begin to just reword and regurgitate what they read in their research. They lost themselves uh, in that process. Very little original stuff uh, comes through at the end. So that's what I would advise you uh, to pay attention to. If you, if you catch yourself mm -hmm. taking that wrong turn, you will, you will, you will lose the, the muse. You will lose the original contribution, which is what the process is all about. I've definitely felt that and discovered it on my own too. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you and you you go back to the history and you go back to reading other people's dialogues about some of these ideas, and then you've learned so much and you feel like you need to share that with the reader. But then it's just like, wait a second, I just read that so that I could actually like hone my own ideas, not so that I could write a historic book necessarily. Exactly, and, yeah. and look. Publishers these days, I, I see this a lot, and I think every other publisher sees this as well. Um, it's uh, the life summary manuscript. We get it a lot. It's somebody who made it to 60-something, suffered a lot through life, got a lot of punches, knockouts, learned throughout that. Then they come to a point where they feel, I have to share this learning of my life with everybody else. The problem is, Everybody will have their knocks, their bumps on the road, their suffering. Everybody will go through that process uh, firsthand. And that's what life is all about. Uh, without that, we wouldn't need to leave. Um, so when you get to that point and you feel tempted to just sort of edit from everything you've learned through your life, those segments that were important to you, because they were important to you, then we project ourselves to everybody else and we think, oh, this is the key for everybody else. And you start gesticulating, look, he said this, he said that. The significance of that is for the one who went through the life um, in which those insights were meaningful. It's impossible to project that to the path of everybody else. So the intent is extremely noble. People want to spare others of the suffering they had to go through. Demystify Psy is a project that is supported almost exclusively by viewers like you. And so if you've watched a couple episodes and you really like what we do and you want to support the podcast, consider coming over to patreon.com. In return for a couple dollars a month, what you're going to end up getting is both of our episodes for the week early. You get them on Saturdays instead of having to wait until Monday and Thursday like the rest of the world. And you get access to one of my favorite things in the world, which is our Sunday patron chat. We are breaking the tradition of 
isolated communication in the digital age. And we get together every Sunday over Zoom and we talk about the big questions that are running through our heads. Sometimes it's questions that the patrons bring. Sometimes it's things that we're curious about. And this is really the place where we get to guide the ship. And so come on over to patreon.com and sign up to give us a couple dollars a month and participate in the patron chat. If you can't do that right now, that is totally fine. You can subscribe to the channel, you can leave a comment, you can come to our Discord server, you can come to our Facebook group, you can follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok. We are in all of these places and would love your support in any way that you can show it. Hopefully, we'll see you there. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. Every life is original. Every life is a draft. What was significant for one is not significant for the other. So to publish you need to contribute something original and not just do a sort of a, a digest of secondhand literature, the segments that happened to have been important to you. That doesn't justify I mean, And there are hundreds of thousands of books published every year. Most of the people who would tell you, oh, Bernardo Casup is great. They haven't read a single book I wrote. Mm. They watched videos. They watched interviews like this. So they get those little pieces that they weave together with other stuff they heard elsewhere uh, for themselves. That's how it usually works. So that's another thing too. And I'm saying this not only to you, but whoever is listening. Um, think about that temptation when you get to your 60s, that you want to do a digest of everything that was important to you to share that with everybody else. It, it's not necessarily what everybody else will resonate with or will find meaningful, or will find important. Often you get these this little life digests that have enormous significance for the author, and you let somebody else read it, and they yawn at it. Mm -hmm. Why? Because every life is unique. Every perspective is unique. Uh, what resonates with one doesn't resonate with the other. What's important for one is not important for the other. Um, so Now, there are really successful autobiographies, though, right? I mean, there are people who have stories to tell that are are certainly valuable to large groups of readers. And it must be about the way that the people who write those narratives pull out meaning from the events that happen to them, rather than just a list of triumphs and failures, but have actually like connected them in some relational fashion to something meaningful that can be universalized. When a life is fundamentally archetypal, in other words, when one lives a life that fits perfectly with that primordial template, um, that's what tends to resonate because the archetypes are shared. Um, but most lives are bits and pieces of myriad different archetypes. Uh, you, you get a collage of all that that is unique, um, which is our key contribution to nature, right? To just embody an archetype. I mean, nice, but. Um, there isn't a reworking there. There isn't a new expression in that. It's something that was primordial from the beginning. What, uh, what I think nature itself might resonate with are those collages, the lives, lives that are collages of multiple archetypes. But those will not sell, those will not resonate because those are unique. And that's the point. You know, Jung would call it individuation. That's the point. It's the uniqueness of the individual embodying multiple or all the archetypes, if we can speak of it. Um, but when, when one has a fundamentally archetypal life, like when one, when one embodies the hero archetype, 
Um, and that can lead to a bestseller because everybody recognizes something collective, shared, and primordial um, in it. But most people who write, you know, their their life digest when they reach 60, their 60s, it's not like that. Uh, it, it's a collage, which is good, you know, it, it's a good thing. Nobody needs to be, I mean, we don't need multiple Alexander the Great, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Maybe we didn't even need one. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. It's really interesting to think about popular works as being archetypical and representing something archetypical. I thought about this in context. I thought about this in context of how difficult it is to write a book or a story that doesn't have a single hero. You can you can a have what? a single hero. Oh yeah. Like the main character is so important, and I think that that's because if you have multiple main characters all, through this lens, all of a sudden you're blending archetypes, and the story isn't just the embodiment of the perfect form. It's suddenly this, you know, there's many. It's a choose your own adventure, and that's perhaps more more childish and less certain than the the, the fundamental preference that people have, which is for a story that they can just take in entirely and fit to some portion of their of their personality yeah. without having to do too much. And work. everyone in the room can do that. And, yeah. And when look, there there are two types of books people feel like writing when they are in their sixties. One is their biography, and the other one is their life less life lessons. So I was talking about the life lessons part that people think their lessons should be the, the lessons that everybody else needs and that's a mistake. But biographies um can be even more archetypal, but biographies is something different. Biographies, we are interested in a biography when the life of that person produced an output that is meaningful to us. For instance, I am I am very interested in Carl Jung's biography because Carl Jung's output as a scientist and a philosopher has been very meaningful to me. I, I appreciate his output, the originality and the significance of his output you know, his ideas and what he produced, irrespective of his particular life story. So because of what he produced, because of the originality of that and how significant I found that output, I became interested in how he got to that. How did he get there? How does a human being produce immense thoughts of that magnitude? How does that happen? That's why I became interested in his biography. So in, in, in the literary market, biographies that are meaningful to people are biographies of other people whose output has been significant. You read the biography of Steve Jobs because his output has been significant. He, he changed all of our lives. But um, very few people will want to read the biography of your grandmother <laughs> or my grandmother. <laughs> Because even though their lives certainly were as significant, maybe more, maybe more deeply archetypal than the life of Steve Jobs or Carl Jung, we, we don't relate to the output. So I, I'm not telling you what I think is right or wrong. I'm telling you what the reality, what the reality of the literary market is. I, I don't I don't think that it's a question of right or wrong. I think that it's a fascinating question of what is it that people resonate with and why there are some stories that appear to be universally valuable in a way that other stories are not. Where on the face of it, you would think that the story of your grandmother would be 
perfectly interesting because it's the story of your blood, of your history, of something to do with the way that you came up in the world and how you were formed and where you're headed. And yet Steve Jobs is still more compelling, maybe because everyone has aspirations to become Steve Jobs. To become Steve Jobs. Right? I mean, I, I, underst I understand that. If you're in the world and you're doing things, uh, I, it seems crazy to just remain one of the, the hoi polloi and resign yourself to the fact that you'll never be anything special. And So there's the hope that, well, if I read these great works of this great person, then perhaps I can understand where it is that they came from and find the essence that will allow me to also get to the top. Well, that's yeah, why you go back to the biographies, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like you want to you want to figure out the steps they took to become so powerful, but they have to be making something powerful in the first place yeah, for the biography yeah. to even be appealing, even a little bit. Um, in a, in the U.S., in your country, in your culture, um, there is a very prevalent conflation between being famous and being special. Mm. Uh, people mix these two things. Um, and it's not based on any logic. It's not based on any reason. If you think about it for 30 seconds, you realize that uh, <laughs> these two things are completely unrelated. There's nothing about being special that requires being famous. And there is nothing about being famous that truly requires being more special than anybody else. Um, every person has a unique perspective, a unique life, a, a unique set of insights. Um, so everybody is equally special. It's very difficult to make an argument that refutes what I just said. Um, but fame, whether your specialness is better known than the specialnesses of everybody else, that's something completely different. And to some extent irrelevant. Uh, it will not change the critical things from the point of view of nature, whether your particular specialness, your particular set of insights have been well known by many others in life because all of that will be in the mind of nature, whether it has been known by other you know, people in life or not. So um, well, don't you think, think the specialness is that people value far and wide what you have contributed to society? It's something like that. And I mean, you can be famous for murdering a cult or something. You could be famous for a lot of terrible reasons. I guess we would call that infamous. But generally speaking, it seems like people are famous because they're really competent, right? They're, they're at the top of some hierarchy of performance, operation. Yeah, the, the will to power. And yeah, and, and in the US especially, that gets conflated a lot with meaning. Uh, you know, the meaning of life is to be rich and famous. It's like, really? Think another ten seconds about this and come back. Tell me if you if you really believe this. Um, I think that and, in a country where there's no safety net, fame seems to be a stand-in for security. Where it's the idea that you cannot fall through the cracks if so many eyes are on you, and if so many eyes are on you, that means that it must be translating to financial success and if you have financial success then you can buy your way out of the teeming horrors of what it means to be poor and rural and fame's I, the new college degree yeah yeah exactly I, I, but i do think that it it's not it, it's not accidental that the lack of safety net in america is also 
present in a country that is so obsessed with fame. Like, I think the two relate to one another deeply in a way that most people don't realize. So there are psychological motivations for this, I understand. But if you think about what what we mean by the terms um, success, meaning, specialness, fame, and power, they are very different. There is very little overlap between them. We create these overlaps because of psychologi- psychological reasons, like you mentioned. Um, and, and that can lead to a lot of suffering because a lot of people think if they are not rich and famous, then their lives are meaningless. From the point of view of nature, that couldn't be further from the truth. Mm. You know, uh, the in, in, in Christianity and most other religions, um, you have the, 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 this part of the religion in which people sort of retire from the world and go live in a monastery or mm. go meditate on a mountain. And, um, and they're not famous. Nobody sees them for 30 years except the local bear and the local birds. <laughs> um, uh, the monasticism, that's what I'm talking about. So the, mon- the monastic impulse in religions um, derives straight from the intuitive acquaintance with the reality that it is your inner life that has value to nature not how you project your inner life towards other people while everybody's alive. Um, In other words, a guy who nobody ever heard about, who has spent his life in a monastery, praying and reading scripture and deriving all kinds of insights during 60 years in a monastery, you never saw him, you never heard of him. When he dies, it will be as if he has never existed. That guy, from the point of view of the mind of nature, is as significant as Michael Jackson, maybe more. Because when those two inner lives are absorbed back into nature, it's irrelevant whether other people knew much about that during their lives or not. They, they are reassociated uh, into the whole. When you say the view of nature, is that God? Is that the old concept of God? Uh, it just seems like you're... you're reifying this concept of nature into some sort of actor and and that seems like a valid perspective from a spiritual point of view i mean every there's god is a very popular idea still is it the same thing i I don't come at it from a spiritual perspective i'm you guys know i'm an idealist i Mm. think uh, the nature of reality is is mental it's mind stuff i think what nature is is a feud especially unbound field of subjectivity and and the world we see are the excitations of that one field of subjectivity so that dovetails nicely with grand unification theories and all that Um, but i think the field is not a objective non-conscious field i think the field is a mind it is subjectivity it is that whose excitations are experiences the colors we see the smells the thoughts the insights the pain um, so from that perspective, human beings are dissociated segments of the mind of nature, like outer personalities. If nature has multiple personality disorder, we are the alters of nature. And life is what that dissociation looks like. Biology, um, metabolism is what a dissociative complex in the mind of nature looks like. We say that it is alive. In other words, it is dissociated. And therefore, the end of life is the end of the dissociation. So what is the end of the dissociation? 
It's the reabsorption of your inner life into the broader mind of nature, that one field of subjectivity. Uh, cultures throughout history have intuited this. Even us, I mean, look at how we portray death, the green reaper. What is the instrument the green reaper carries? It's a harvesting instrument. Harvesting. Uh, other cultures have had the notion of sacrifice, which is a terrible, morally, uh, uh, absolutely uh, rejectable notion because you know everybody's going to die anyway. You don't need to hurry that process. If you hurry that process, you, has you have less opportunities for learning. So sacrifice uh, is abominable. But the intuition behind sacrifice is not... Is it, it, it that didn't come out of nowhere? The idea that you make a contribution to what you might call God by ending a life, it is not illogical because when you end a life, you end a dissociation. So you are gifting that person's memories and insights to the mind of God. That's when God can access that. It's when the dissociation ends because while the dissociation is ongoing, there is a dissociative boundary preventing the mind of nature from accessing the contents of your inner life. So it, it, it's not completely gratuitous. It is abominable and 100% um, unnecessary because we are all going to die anyway. Uh, but it's not illogical. It mm. didn't come out of it nowhere. It seems like there's so something practical to it too. Like this, this idea that constantly throughout your life you have to give up things in order to get things like to make a future better you might have to you know forestall whatever immediate pleasures you might receive uh had you not done the long-term efforts to move yourself towards the future i feel like there's something deeply human about that process that is celebrated in the idea of sacrifice as well like it's the it's sacrifices are fundamentally about giving up something that you love right that's that's what makes it a sacrifice it's not just you give up something that you didn't really care about you have to give up you have to make these trades almost. I'm with, not sure with, about that. I think that in a lot of societies, sacrifices were like people captured in battle and stuff like that. I, I just, I think that there's a, there's probably I mean, a there's, whole, yeah. there's the Judeo-Christian. Even you if know. you just go with like the Judeo-Christian tradition of sacrificing animals, let's say, right? The, the old temple sacrifices. Sure. These were valuable, right? These were things that that you wouldn't want to burn, right? Otherwise. They're, they're life-sustaining. In some, well, there are two origins for the notion of sacrifice. One is um, I'm going to surrender to the divinity that which is dearest to me, um, and that you see a lot in Christianity, for instance. Um, yeah, in the Bible, you have that in the Old Testament um, and the New, I guess. Well, the. Huh? Uh, you know, and the New Testament, God, God's only son being sacrificed, you know. That too, that too. Another notion of sacrifice is when you sacrifice so to fulfill a need of the divinity. So that's what you had in Egypt. Um, when you sacrifice, you're giving God something God needs. Uh, you see that in other cultures uh, as well. So what I mentioned, um, that notion of sacrifice of a life uh, because of you know the the inner life of the being being sacrificed becoming available to the mind of nature that notion attaches to this 
second idea of sacrifice, that you sacrifice in order to give God what God needs, or to give the dead what the dead need, like this was done in Egypt, when somebody very important um, would die, he would sacrifice uh, his household stuff, because he might need that stuff in the afterlife, or you would sacrifice their pets, because they might need the pets in the afterlife, or you would provide food, which is sacrifice that food your tribe is not going to eat um, but the dead might need that food in the afterlife and the same applies to god you're giving god something that god needs that second notion of sacrifice i think has a logical root it's just that it's morally ab abominable and absolutely unnecessary but there is a logical root to that it's not completely arbitrary it didn't come out of nowhere uh, and, and and our depiction of um, the, the 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 Green Reaper also didn't come out of nowhere. You know, just think about it. He could be carrying anything. He could be carrying a sword. He could be you know carrying some weapon. But no, he carries a harvesting instrument. Do you of know all the things? Do you know the origins of how he came to do that? Of how the image has arose and mm -hmm. arisen in in our collective psyche, I I don't know, I don't I mean, know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure there is established scholarship on that. But. Oh, interesting. I mean, the scythe makes a lot of sense as the instrument of of death because that's the pastoral end of the season. Everything goes away after the winter comes after the harvest is gathered it becomes cold the trees die like it it's it seems to represent the closing of prosperity and the moment of judgment like if you think about what happens if your harvest isn't good enough you won't make it through the winter that's one way to look at it um i i don't share that view because we don't harvest we don't harvest the fields to go hungry we harvest the fields in order to collect that which is critical for our sustenance. That's why we have that harvesting instrument. It's to, to harvest things that we want, that we need in order to live and do whatever it is uh, that we do. So I think that choice of instrument is, is telling. I don't think it's some vague symbolism related to fall and winter no i think it's very specific you know you are portraying the green reaper that which will kill you that which will end your life why doesn't he carry an arrow a spear a knife a sword no he carries a scythe of all things and a very low scythe. I mean, he can cut off your feet, but uh, it's hard to see how he's going to kill you uh, with that thing. So there's like a recycling mm. element of that, the harvest element. The, no, the I think I, 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 it's more than that. I think it's when you bank your gains. Nature banks its gains with death. That's when metacognitive contents, the insights, the memories of, of a human life, are banked, cashed in by nature. Because up until your death, those insights are only yours. They are, they are not benefiting nature at large. But when you die, which is the end of your dissociation, now they are banked. Now they become available in a much broader 
spatially unbound cognitive context. I mean, I'm speaking from the point of view of analytic idealism. Um, so if you, if you are a materialist, of course, you would think that everything I'm saying is senseless. Because under materialism, when you die, your mental contents disappear. They don't become integrated into the rest of nature. They just disappear. So everything I'm saying makes no sense under 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 physicalism. Um, but under, I mean, what about the fact that they they get integrated by your works while you're alive and your interactions and the ideas that you put on the table in a public sense? Because it seems there's like, value to that, of course. Yeah. What, I'm because sorry. What's that? There's value to that because mm -hmm. you will be sort of you'll be nurturing other people's insights as well. So you're multiplying um, your effect. Um, and that seems natural to me. Like That seems in accordance with human nature. It, we're such social entities, and, and there's something really natural about writing books or, or being a teacher or a doctor or anything where you're actually out there, you know, a plumber fixing people's stuff. You're contributing. You're like interacting in this way that you are in sense, some sense disseminating all of your experience into the world. To some degree, but I think that there's also a very long tradition of people who leave society and pursue these monastic lifestyles. Like I think that this isn't this is something that runs in parallel always, where there are the people that are of the world and there are the people that are of the spirit. And I think that this is something that we really I personally struggle with as a biologist because when you get down to the question of what is life, it's very, very hard to simply leave it at the physical. It's just chemistry bumping up into itself and all of nature is just molecules. It leaves, it doesn't account for will and desire. And so if we're going to account for will and desire and choice, do you believe in choice? I don't remember. We make choices every day. Do you believe in free? Do you believe in like the ability? I I hate to use free will, but do you believe in free will? I think it's a red herring. I think the concept does not have a clear meaning. It's internally contradictory. It's pointing at something for which there is no semantic space. In other words, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Fair enough. So I'm not denying it. Neither am I affirming it. I'm saying that the point is meaningless. It's like uh, you asked me, is the number five married or single? <laughs> and you demand that I either say it's married or it's single. It's obviously and single. if I say it's single, then you say, well, therefore it's not married. <laughs> and what I'm telling you is that that's not a question to ask. <laughs> because that's... it doesn't make sense. It's a category mistake. The appeal to free will, it's an appeal to semantic space in between determination and randomness. My point is, there is no s such semantic space. Things are either determined or they are random. And even randomness may be a purely epistemic concept. In other words, things are random if we can't identify the patterns they follow. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they are unfolding according to no pattern. It means that these monkeys here cannot figure out what the pattern is, and that's all there is to it. So at the end of the day, you're left with determination. But if I say I'm a determinist, I would be lying because I don't think our choices are determined by brain activity. I think brain activity is what our choices look like when they are observed from across our dissociative boundary. But I think our choices are determined by what we are. We choose what we choose because we are what we are and we can't be otherwise. Free will is a red herring and you see that immediately 
if I, if I tell you that if we had true libertarian free will, we would all, each one of us, be maximally happy because we would simply choose to will whatever the circumstances of our lives happen to be. If you are serving a life sentence in solitary confinement, you will choose that that's exactly what you want and you'll be extremely happy in solitary confinement. But we are not free to will. We are free to act according to the will. But the will is determined by what we are, and we can't be other than what we are. So what is this business of free will? What about, yeah, what about people that are making really bad choices? Would you offer them any, like, could you coach someone out of making bad choices? Or do you think that who they are has fundamentally determined that and there's just no, no. way back? No, look. Can we learn to make good choices? Yes, because th think of a computer system. I mean, I'm, I'm a computer engineer too, so I, that's my favorite metaphor. A computer can have many chips. Like, uh, uh, look at this. Yeah, well, Lots of chips in there. Do you see? What is there, that? Uh, multiple, multiple sizes. Is that your computer? Top. <laughs> there are chips in there. Uh, this is a... Uh, This is a mini computer I designed, a didactical, didactical mini computer to, to help people teach uh, computer engineering. Each one of those little black things is a chip, and they all operate deterministically. But they require inputs to produce their deterministic outputs. If the inputs, cha inputs change, they produce other outputs. So this communication of inputs and outputs is essential for, the, uh, uh, for a deterministic system to work. So when you say, if somebody always makes bad choices, can you coach this person to make good choices? What, is, what does that mean to coach that person? It means providing new inputs to that person, which will lead to different outputs. So yes, in a deterministic world, we can learn, we can change. We can evolve, we can improve, we can make choices. Determinism doesn't contradict any of this. All that it says is that everything that happens is ultimately determined by what nature is. And nature can't be other than what it is. That's all there is to it. But all the inputs and outputs, all the play of choices being made, that's part of it. And my choices are determined by what I am. Given the inputs I receive, if those inputs change, my choices can change. And you can orient yourself towards different inputs. That's the very bizarre thing about being a life form versus a computer. Do you think that computers have the ability to tune into this distributed conscious field system that you speak of? They, they are it. They are not outside of it. Mm. They don't need to tune into it. They are a particular pattern of excitation of this one underlying field. The question is, do they have private conscious in their life in the mm. way you and I have? I don't think they do because I don't think silicon and oxides are what dissociation in the mind of nature looks like. I think what dissociation in the mind of nature looks like is metabolism, uh, transcription, protein folding, ATP burning, all that good stuff that allows us to recognize life in all its variety, as one phenomenal distinct from everything else. So I don't think computers have private 
conscious in their life. But computers are a representation of certain patterns of excitation in the mind of nature, because what else could they be under analytic idealism? They do represent mental activity in the mind of nature, just not private mental activity. And you feel like there's no threat that that will ever happen at any point? Because, you know, there's obviously the popular catastrophism that the AI overlords are coming to, you know, scheme against the humans. And Look, there is a danger and it has nothing to do with computers have, having private conscious in their life. Uh, AI computers are very powerful tools. Nuclear power stations are very powerful tools. They can go wrong and we should take safety measures to prevent uh, catastrophe when they go wrong. When we don't, things do go wrong. Chernobyl, Fukushima. I think AI is just like a nuclear power station, a, a, a very, very powerful, very complicated system that requires uh, safety uh, measures, safeguards. Um, that that is completely independent of whether AIs are also artificially conscious. I don't think they are. I don't think they will ever be. Do I think that humans if one day could create artificial private conscious in their life yes i think i think we can i think we will i don't think it's even far away but it will look like a cell mm. it will we will it, the quest for artificial private conscious in their life is the quest for abiogenesis it is the quest for the creation of life from non-life will we succeed i think there is every reason to think we will and when we do it will look like an amoeba and one day it may look like a monkey, but uh, it will still be artificial and it will have private conscious in their life. We will have learned how to artificially induce dissociation in the mind of nature, just like nature did it spontaneously uh, to create us. If you place metabolism at the heart of the formation of a private inner life and metabolism inside of a cell is basically just power generation. It's combustion. It's you take sugars and you pass them across a series of breakdown steps and get out carbon dioxide and water. You're burning stuff. It's also growth, replication, and morphogenesis, right? You, You don't get any of these things without metabolism. Of course. And so it's the foundation of it. Is is a power supply inside of a computer not just that? And so if you have the structures that live on top of it that tell it to make more power supplies and to send out machines that build power stations and harvest the sun or harvest the winds, like is that not aspirational towards the same kind of metabolic processes that life has, but just in silico? Because I agree, I agree with what you about there being something fundamentally biological about consciousness and so if we were to create life that it would be soft and squishy the way that we are but i also sometimes can 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 see the parallels to that inside of an artificial computer system of course look we can abstract our way our way up until we are completely detached from substrate and then we find this this echoes of certain things on other things. Um, and people do that all the time when it comes to scientific theories. You know, their models of nature are abstractions. You are sort of making the models independent of the concrete embodiment in a substrate. You're transferring all of 
those dynamics to mathematical equations. But when it comes to listening to what nature is telling us, because that's what science does, we are looking at what nature is telling us. We, when it comes to consciousness, we make a mistake that we don't make anywhere else. For instance, I can scientifically abstract kidney function into mathematical equations. And then I can run those mathematical equations that model kidney function on my iMac right now in front of me. And I can run that model with such a degree of molecular level accuracy that it will have a complete isomorphism with an actual kidney. Yet, nobody will expect that on that account alone, my computer will urinate on my desk. <laughs> because we know that that isomorphism is conceptual. It, it, it exists in a level of abstraction. It doesn't translate back to the, to the concreteness of a kidney. Um, a computer simulate kidney function is not going to pee on my desk even if the simulation is accurate down to the molecular level, such that there is a complete isomorphism with a real kidney. What's the difference? Well, the difference is the substrate. In one case, it's silicon and oxides. In the other case, it's carbon, hydrogen, um, nitrogen, and uh, you know, actual kidney function. One is isomorphic to the other without being the other. You cannot transport all the implications of one to the other. In a kidney, kidney function implies urine. In a computer, it doesn't. So we understand that when it comes to urine. But when it comes to private conscious inner life, because we are so confused about consciousness, we forget that. And now we say, if I simulate the patterns of information flow and integration in a human brain in my computer, lo and behold, my computer will be conscious. It's exactly the same thing as saying that my computer will pee if I run an accurate simulation of kidney function in it. So that's, I, I totally agree. And it immediately makes me think of the actual parallel, which is that if what kidneys do is they filter the blood and they remove things that are waste and need to be discarded. And so urine is the byproduct of that waste. And so if someone designs a computer system and they use the biological principles of kidney function in order to process data to remove corrupt files or I don't know enough about computers to be able to really extend this metaphor. It's called, it's called garbage collection. So if you write an, a, uh, a program that does garbage collection inside of the computer on the same functionality principles as the kidney, but recognizes the limitations of it, can you not incrementally put together systems that are inspired by biology but rendered in context of a computer system in such a way that they actually do make sense? And you're not expecting it to urinate on your desk, but you are expecting that there's going to be a collection of garbage that it puts out that you can then throw away. Look, we can enforce all kinds of isomorphisms, correspondences of form between the way computers work and living beings work. But these correspondences of form do not imply that uh, the computer will have private conscious in their life, just that it doesn't imply the computer will urinate. So we can go and you know go off to the races in making these isomorphisms, enforcing these isomorphisms. 
And we still will not have any more or less reason to think that the computer suddenly has private conscience in their life the way you and I have. Why? Because nature is telling us that all natural instantiations of things that seem to have private conscience in their life all share this microscopic level process that we call metabolism. I couldn't be more different than an amoeba, but if you look at both me and the amoeba under a microscope, damn, we are identical. We are doing the same thing. That's what nature is telling us, that when there are beings that are identical to us at a microscopic level, exhibiting behaviors that in our case are motivated by private conscious in their life, we are very well motivated to say that they too have private conscious in their life because their behaviors are the same and their function and structure uh, is the same. It's not analogous. It is the same. Mm. Metabolism is the same. They are all doing protein folding. They are all doing uh, uh, ATP burn. They are all doing the same thing. But when you take a computer and you say at a certain level of abstraction, there is an isomorphism and the behavior is the same, then you're making two mistakes. You're forgetting that the behavior is the same because we made it be the same. It's an imitation. That's why it's the same. It's not because it's naturally exhibiting that behavior spontaneously like a cat exhibits behaviors analogous to mine. No, it's the same behavior because it was engineered to be the same. Um, We don't think that a shop window mannequin is conscious just because it looks like a human being. Because we know it was built to look like a human being. It was an imitation. So we, the rest of the implications don't apply. So that's one mistake. And the other mistake is to take an isomorphism for an, for an identity. It's to take uh, the isomorphism of a computer function at, with, with us at a certain level of abstraction with an identity. Um, and I think both are unjustified. I think there is nothing in nature telling us that however much isomorphisms we built into a silicon and oxide construct, that that will, on that account alone, have conscious in their life the way you and I have. I think we have no reason to believe that. Now, could it be the case? It, it could. I, look, I cannot eliminate the possibility. I cannot prove that it cannot be. But there are millions of silly things we cannot disprove. I cannot disprove the flying spaghetti monster. There may be a monster in a higher dimension using its noodly appendages to move the planets around the sun. Goodness knows the evidence is consistent with it. The planets do move around the sun. And I cannot disprove the flying spaghetti monster because gravity is invisible. It's a model. The twists and turns of the fabric of space-time are also largely invisible. Maybe there is a flying spaghetti monster. I cannot disprove it, but uh, I can make a very strong argument that we do not need to spend time contemplating the hypothesis. So I would submit that in the same way, we do not have good reason to spend time contemplating the hypothesis of artificial private consciousness in silicon. But in abiogenesis, now we would be well grounded to say that an artificial life form that metabolizes will have private consciousness in their life of its own. And then all the moral stuff you know all the ethics stuff um applies i think that the limitation here is that most of the people that we've spoken to that are working on developing artificial consciousness inside of computers 
would not say that the amoeba is conscious. And <laughs> yeah. And so you, we run into this all the time. We'll talk to people that are working on AI and they're like, you know, I don't know that my cat is conscious. I don't know that the amoeba is conscious. And it seems to be the root cause of all of the tension, like you're saying, which is a deep misunderstanding of the nature of consciousness that is this it's somehow disembodied and appears suddenly at some place in evolution. It just like pops into being and suddenly you have consciousness, whereas before you didn't. And I, I viscerally agree that if we're going to be talking about consciousness, we can't talk about it as being somehow distinct from the simplest life forms. We can't. It, it, it leads us down an extremely slippery moral slope. The moment you start denying the, the private consciousnesses of other living beings is the moment when catastrophe is just around the corner. It's the moment when you start killing, torturing, because you know, nothing's suffering there. So uh, I, I think every fiber of intuition in us as products of nature is telling us that uh, all living beings are conscious. All living beings suffer, suffer and are capable of pain. And to deny that, I think it's morally deplorable and extraordinarily dangerous. Um, let's go back to the Nazis thinking that Slavs are inferior beings and therefore, in a sense, not really conscious like us and the Jews. And look at what happens um, when you start entertaining that thought. Now, have you ever noticed that most AI researchers are men? The vast majority. <laughs> I yeah. think what that, uh, sh and, and it's not tongue-in-cheek what I'm about to tell you. Um, I, 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 I'm serious about it. Um, women are able, um, they are capable of doing something miraculous that men are not. Women are capable of creating new life. And although men have some participation in that business, it's a very minor participation. Um, what creates new life from a cell to a walking, breathing, talking, li uh, living human is women. That's a miraculous capacity that men don't have. Now, Freud used to talk about uh, penis envy which is women being envious of this extra organic part that men have and they don't. I submit to you that there is womb envy, mm. which is man's desperate need to be able to perform the same miracle that women perform, but they can't. So they tell themselves a torches, conceptually deranged story about the nature of life and consciousness that allows them to entertain the fantasy that they too can bring privately conscious life into this world. They can be mothers too. And, and, and that need is extraordinarily powerful and it will overwhelm any sense of reason and logic. And it will lead people to say that, well, cats are not conscious. Consciousness is something I get when I organize my logic gates just in the right way. Because it opens the door to a belief that satisfies that unfulfillable need. The need to create 
consciousness out of to create privately conscious life out of something that wasn't it before that divine godly power that women have um, and men don't um that, so i submit to you that this is what's going on other than the fact that it's just silly <laughs> that the the thinking behind it is just flat out silly it's equivalent to saying that my computer will pee on my desk if i make an accurate enough simulation of kidney function beyond that you know we don't do silly things just because we are silly creatures no we do silly things because we have this powerful emotional motivations that we deny we haven't hooked we the uh, computer to up to your up to your you know bladder yet i guess is what it comes down to Say, say it again. <laughs> like you haven't hooked up that computer program to your bladder, and I think that's where <laughs> things are headed. Is people, as I imagine, a, a future that's very bionic, where people are sort of jacked into these programs, and so, and at some sense, the computer is actually tethered into the squishy world, and now it oh, does the, have the, the ability to act out. It can be on your desk if it wants to, I guess. You know, the the, the bionic part. It, it it's old. It's old news. Look at this. Oh, now I can't see shit. <laughs> I am bionic, yep. uh, or my phone, my phone. I can communicate. My computer. Look, I can see you right now. You're on the other side of the Atlantic, nine hours, uh, nine time zones away from me. And here we are talking life to one another. We are already bionic, but this doesn't mean that conscious, private conscious in their life somehow somehow arises from essentially the sand that uh, that's used to make my computer. Or, well, or, the, the, the or, thought or the experiment. polymers that are used to make my glasses. Yeah, exactly. Like the thought experiment there is to say, all right, well, so if you if you rapture all of the humans and the silicon is left inert upon the planet, what happens? Nothing. It just decays and follows the rules of nature because there's nothing within it, even with the capabilities of AI that we have right now, where it would then continue to generate itself. And I think that the fantasy, like you're saying, this this womb envy drives people to believe that they are creating systems that in the absence of humans would still function in the same vein and in the same principles. Here, I would disagree with you, perhaps okay. surprisingly to you. I think all structure and function in principle can be created um, mechanically or electromechanically. So I think there is nothing in principle that precludes the hypothesis of AIs, which are not privately conscious, but have a certain structure and certain function, nothing in principle precludes the possibility that they could self-regenerate and procreate, that you could have machines that are capable of creating other machines. Because all of this talk is talk of structure and function. None of it requires or implies private conscious inner life. But I think it is in principle coherent to think that um, a species like us could create AI and seed another uninhabited planet with it in such a way that they would carry on and continue to, to reproduce and generate more instances of themselves, maybe even evolve, uh, perform all kinds of tasks, and, and have essentially a civilization that does not have private consciousness. I think that is conceivable um, because we know from complexity science that even very simple rules can lead to very complex behaviors that behaviors that we associate with life. Just look at cellular automata and Conway's game of life. Two very simple rules 
and you get all kinds of lifelike processes going on. So I, I don't think that is in principle impossible. I think where we go wrong is to believe that the computer can pee on the desk. In other words, is to think that because we imitate the patterns of information processing in a human brain on a silicon substrate, that that silicon substrate, just like us, should also have private conscious inner life. We have no reason to believe that, none whatsoever, because there is nothing more different. Now, if I take a, a brain and I take my mini computer now that I just showed you, and I'm going to saw every chip on that computer uh, to expose a, 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 a section, a lateral section of that chip, and I'm going to put all of those sawed chips on the table next to a brain that I'll put on the table. It is obvious that they are two completely different things. Yes, there are isomorphisms between the two at a certain level of conceptual abstraction, but that doesn't eliminate the pungent, concrete, undeniable fact that a computer and a brain are completely different things. So why do we insist in thinking that the computer should have private conscious in their life just as the brain seems to have? There is no reason for that. They are totally different. A computer operates by moving electrical charges in metal traces that are gated by silicon gates. A brain processes information by releasing neurotransmitters in synaptic clefts. clefts. And, 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 and the energy is produced by ATP burning. I mean, these are completely different things. But because we are so driven to, to, the, to carving out space for the belief that we, men, too, can create life, um, that we abandon logic, we hang logic at the door, and we proceed to entertain fantasies. I think that it's easy to entertain the fantasy because people don't have a good sense of what is life and what is consciousness. Like when we talk, when we have these debates, it seems like that's where it comes down to that. If you don't have a solid understanding of consciousness and you operate under the idea that it is something distinct from the substrate of life or the manifestation of life, then you can develop these fantasies that you will program your computers to be able to do that because it's indistinguishable. And your computer will be, it will have a bladder reservoir and it will have fake blood and it will be able to pee on your desk. And so because it can pee on your desk because of the thing that you have engineered into it, it is one and the same since it's running the software that's modeled on the principles upon which a brain works. And yeah, yeah. If we have a naive, limited understanding of what's going on, then of course we artificially create room for these fantasies because our understanding fails. Richard Feynman wrote about it. He wrote about cargo cults. Mm -hmm. Do you know what uh, that is? Mm -hmm. But maybe I'll, I'll maybe somebody listening doesn't know. Yeah. yeah, just for the audience. So, in the Pacific during the Second World War, the Americans established several several airstrips, airplane bases on several Pacific islands uh, during the war against Japan. And the natives of those islands, they had never seen technology before. And suddenly they see these things with wings that fly. And, and, and when they come back and they land, they have cargo because the Americans also distributed food and trinkets to the natives to make them happy. 
So they started thinking, oh, these things with wings, they are from, they come from the gods, and when they land in here, uh, we get goods. So when, uh, when the war was over and the Americans went away, the natives started creating airstrips themselves and replicating the form of the airplanes with wood and straws. They even created this, this control towers out of wood, bamboo, whatever they used. So the form was all recreated, and they did that in the hope that then they would get the cargo, they would get the food, they would get, they would get the trinkets. Why did they do that? Because they, have a, they had a naive, incomplete theory of how this stuff was working. They thought that the form alone could account for the function. They didn't understand that there was a lot of thing, a lot of stuff going on under the hood that enabled what was going on. AI is the same thing. We have a very naive, very silly understanding of the nature of reality, the nature of consciousness, which creates these gaping gaps uh, in, our, in, our, in our models of reality. And we believe that form translates to function. We entertain cargo cults. Um, we think that if I imitate the form of information processing and integration in the human brain, if I imitate that in silicon, that uh, I will get the consciousness. That's like imitating the form of the airplane with straw and hoping that you'll get the cargo. It, it's entirely analogous. It's exactly the same thing. Mm. And it's all the complexity which makes life so difficult for people to define because it's really strange that you know a child can tell whether something is alive or not it's a very natural intuition for people to know when something's alive versus when it isn't and yet there seems to be no real good consistently used definition of life there's like lists of qualities but in terms of what actually defines something that's living it seems to be this you know constantly yeah. <laughs> receding it's because we want to create some form of abstraction. Um, life is extraordinarily easy to identify. It's the only thing that burns ATP, does transcription, and protein folding. It's incredibly easy to identify. Now you can say, well, viruses, they don't really metabolize, but they come close. Okay, there can be a discussion there. But that's a, a discussion about a tiny interface. Uh, by and large, we know exactly what's alive and what's not. The problem is we try to abstract away from the concreteness that nature is giving us. We're trying to abstract some, some conceptual framework that is more generic than metabolism. And we start talking about, well, if it grows and reproduces, then it's living. Well, okay, then a cellular automata has living beings. That's just silly. It's just silly because we know exactly what's going on in a cellular automata. You know exactly what microscopic silicon gates are opening and closing according to what rules. Um, and, but we keep on insisting on finding some abstraction that raises the idea of life spiritually beyond the wetness and the concreteness and the warmness of, of uh, the warmth of, of a metabolism. There is no difficulty at all about identifying life. It metabolizes. Metabolism is unique. Nothing else in nature metabolizes. And all life metabolizes. That is it. Why do we need more? If we want to really abstract in philosophical terms, then we, we can start talking about the unified plan of morphogenesis, um, which is something we, we, we haven't understood yet. We, we cannot reduce that. 
to molecular level processes. How can you, can you elaborate cell... on that? I'm not familiar with that. Well, how, how does, when we grow, cells specialize depending on where they are in which part of the embryo. Some cells become your brain. Other cells become your toe. Other cells become your liver. And they know exactly what to become and what to do depending on where they are in the global unified plan of a living body. Now, we, we do not have yet a, a complete, satisfying, bottom-up model of morphogenesis uh, based on molecular first principles. It doesn't exist. Um, the more we look at it, the more we get lost in, 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 in unfathomable complexity in the signaling that is going on. So if you want to have some satisfying philosophical abstraction, we can speak of life being associated with whatever gives rise and enables morphogenesis, whatever enables this sort of this global blueprint that allows us to go from bricks to Cologne's cathedral. Because, you know, what DNA does, it, it, it produces proteins. Proteins are bricks. But how do you arrange those bricks together to, leave, to, to lead to a human being? How do you arrange the bricks together to lead to Cologne's cathedral? We, we don't quite understand that. Uh, but whatever it is, it seems to be intimately associated with life. Because real bricks don't come together to form Cologne's cathedrals. It needs humans to put them together that way. But when it comes to life, that organization comes from the inside out somehow. Somehow, living organisms know how where to put the bricks in just the right way, and we call it growth. So you could associate life with something at that level to give people some kind of warm, fuzzy, philosophical, satisfying philosophical abstraction. Uh, but I submit to you, we don't need it. We know exactly what metabolizes and what doesn't. Metabolism is the thing that unifies all life in all its vastly different forms. At the microscopic level, everything metabolizes. And yes, viruses don't. So in my book, they are not living. They do not have private conscious uh, in their life. We create the difficulty out of our philosophical prejudices and, and psychological needs. There is no difficulty there. <laughs> life is what's obvious what life is. What do you make about scaling up life forms? So obviously, we're each these cities of different cells. And, you know, there's a case to be made that each cell has its own goals. And, and you know, the reason that large organisms even evolved is because there was some collaboration necessary between all the little pieces, which worked out good for everybody or something like that. What about, like, do you entertain the Gaian perspective that the planet itself could be a giant organism in some community of other planets? And do you think that it's a waste of time to contemplate these larger scale beings that might not operate on this same cellular program that we're used to? No, I don't think so. Um, what we, one is appealing to is some kind of solution to the combination problem. How fundamentally disjoint subjects of experience can somehow merge together into a higher level subject subject of experience. There are good philosophical reasons to say that this very idea is incoherent in principle, not to mention the fact that there is absolutely zero empirical evidence for such a thing ever happening. No multicellular organism comes to this earth by having individual cells crawl towards one another and pile on top of one another. That's, uh, that's, not that, that, that's actually not true. 
Discord damn. Yeah, tell me. Yeah, so there's this there's these crazy slime molds that have uh individual single celled periods of their life. And then at some point when I think it's nutrient starvation triggers a multicellular program where they come together, they form a multicellular stock, and only some fraction of the spores on the end of the stock. They make a little out. slug. Basically. Yeah, they, they, it's, it's insane. You can actually see it on the plate. They come together, they move around, they find the place where they're going to grow their stock, and then only the cells that are at the very end of the stock are the ones that reproduce. And so all the rest sacrifice themselves for the production of this reproducing body. It's not just like a, a mushroom either. It's like wiggling around and, and it's like a little organism. It's kind of wild. You know that marine animal called a Portuguese man of war? Mm-hmm. It... Uh, it's coherent, it moves coherently. There is division of labor. Some of the organisms in it are, are, are stingers, others are floaters, others are to digest prey. It's not one organism, it's a colony. So yes, there are colonies, there is commensalism. Um, the only instance where organisms seem to truly have merged is mitochondria. That's the only instance in natural history where there is good reason to think that mitochondria were once a separate organism. Why do we know that? Well, they even have their own DNA that's different from the DNA in the nucleus. So look, commensalism, colonies, things coming together, sharing goals and dividing work, even specialization. Yes, that's common. But no animal that is multicellular and one organism with one DNA has ever come to the earth by cells piling together on top of one another. Multicellular organisms, they grow, they are not assembled. I am still the same zygote that I once was in the womb of my mother. That zygote was unicellular, right? There is no question of it being a compound entity at that point. It was one cell. I submit to you that I am still the same non-compound unitary organism that I was when I was a zygote in my mother's womb. The only thing that happened is that that zygote has created internal structure. It has created internal complexification, internal differentiation, internal specialization through growth. Now, the template for that inner complexification is cellular, because something that is a cell only knows how to be another cell. Being a cell is the original template. So internal structure is created by um, iteratively and recursively reapplying that template to the organism itself. And we call it mitosis or cell division, I submit to you that there is no division. What's happening is an inner complexification of what was and will always continue to be a unitary non-compound organism. It's just that the template of that inner complexification is a fractal reflection of what the thing was in the beginning, because that's the only thing it knows how to be. So I am not a compound organism because we can identify cells in my body. Those cells did not pile together 
crawled together and piled on top of one another to form me. No, it started as a unitary zygote. And it's still a unitary organism. When, when an organism that was unitary no longer is unitary, when that happens, we call it cancer. So, hold on, I want to make a point about this. Uh, the, the, the egg without sperm is not an organism. It's just an egg. And so, at the very that's least... That's why I talk about the zygote. So, immediately sh- after fecundation. But I think that that's single cells coming together to form the structure that then differentiates. And so, to make the, to, to make the barrier at the zygote, is to ignore that there is a coming together of single cells that then sets off the motion that produces you as the structure and the differentiation. And I say this not to just contradict, but because I spend a lot of time thinking about multicellularity in the context of bacterial biofilms. I studied them when I was doing my PhD, and it really got to me that it's very difficult to not treat the biofilm as an organism because it starts with a single cell. That cell divides. It has the same genetic profile. It has structures. It has specialization. It has all of these things. It and is one yes, organism. And it's not, as, it's not as complex as we are perhaps in the sense that it's not writing operas and books and things like that, but it follows the exact same processes. But at the end of the I day... Agree. It's this, it's this aggregation of individual cells that produces the body. The same argument could be applied to the entire Earth at some point. <laughs> like, the entire biosphere could be traced back. I mean, at least that's what the textbooks try to do right now, is trace the origins of life back to this one moment that occurred, and everything else has come from it, which, you know, I'm a little skeptical of. But the, the point is that then in that sense everything is just one organism still and you're left with this Gaian business and yeah. <laughs> now you have to start thinking about communities of planets interacting and yeah we have to be careful about how we sort of slide from one conceptual understanding to another without noticing that uh, we, either we are conflating things or we're incurring a logical fallacy very subtle one when we sort of move from one side to the other your slime film it be if it began with one cell that underwent mitosis to get you the film, I would say that's one organism. And it's still the same unitary organism that it was when it was just one cell before it started uh, dividing. Those cells in the film did not crawl towards one another and pile on top of one another to form the film. No, they grew out of the inner complexification of the original cell. Now, when you talked about fecundation, the sperm and the egg, the analogy would hold some would hold some water in the context of what we are discussing. If the sperm as a cell, distinguishable from the egg as a cell, were still present, but that's not what happens. Mm. They are not distinguishable as different cells in the zygote. The zygote is unitary. Um, so in the context of what we are discussing, that metaphor doesn't apply. It, it, it doesn't do what you seem to want it to do because th- there is no sperm uh, sperm separate from the egg in the zygote. They, they are collapsed together. 
to some degree, but you can still identify the chromosome that comes from your father and the chromosome that comes from your mother. Of course, of course. But uh, the thing. But I, 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 I see what you're trying to say, which is that there's an integration of the substance inside of a single body that is then driving. Yeah, most of the sperm is 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 gone, is left behind, right? Doesn't even doesn't even get in, and it becomes a um, a husk um, uh, outside. So, if we start counting from the zygote, which was a unitary non-compound organism, one cell, not a piling up of a sperm and an egg. The zygote is one cell. It has unified metabolism. From that point on, what you get is not an aggregation of cells. What you get is growth. What you get is an inner complexification. If you, if you look at a three-day-old embryo, it will have the same size as the zygote immediately after fecundation. To have the exact same boundaries, same size, rooted in the same place. All that you will see that is different is that in one case, the three-day-old case, there is more inner structure. That's all. And that inner structure was not created by eight cells coming together. It was created by an inner complexification of the original zygote. It, a living being is given its form from the inside out. Raw materials come from the outside, but the plan comes from the inside out. A car is given its form from the outside in. Engineers define the form of the car, and then they assemble or weld the parts together. We are not assembled. Multicellular organisms are not assembled. They grow. And this is a, this is a fantastic difference, and we lose sight of it in this course when we start talking about our being multicellular organisms formed by several cells, as if cells were parts, like the car's parts. But that's not the history of the organism. That's not how the organism came to be. We are not made of parts because we were not assembled. We have inner structure that complexified through growth, growth in a fractal way. Now, the original form was a cell. We apply that same template, cell-like template, recursively and inwards in a fractal way. And yes, there is these little things that we call other cells, but they are part of a unified whole. When they are not, we speak of cancer. We were not assembled like a car was, and we lose sight of it, sight of it somehow in our culture. We like to speak of ourselves as made of parts, as a mechanism, and doctors as, as car mechanics. And why do we do that? Because it's obviously not appropriate. If we just think for 30 seconds longer, it's obviously not appropriate. We are not made of parts, for God's sake. I mean, that much is obvious. And the, the, question, the question remains in the source of the the growth because there's something weird about multicellularity which is that if you look at eukaryotes eukaryotes are characterized by having mitochondria so they've experienced this merging of organisms and the creation of a different grounds for evolution you have we've discovered only one organism that fills the gaps between a single-celled eukaryote and you know, a eukaryote of maybe a couple of hundred cells. 
there's this weird evolutionary space that we haven't really quite figured out, which is how do you go from a single eukaryotic cell to something that can be a true multicellular body that grows out of fertilization and this inward differentiation? And the only organism that fills that gap is this, uh, it's called vulvacine algae. And they make these really beautiful spherical colonies. But even with them, it seems more of a, of a bacterial kind of body plan than it is a true multicellularity where you have this progressive complexity of structure. And so that gap is really interesting to me because I, w- I think that if we could understand how it is that organisms crossed that in the first place, we would have a clearer sense of what it means for us to grow and differentiate from the zygote. But you're looking, you're looking for that answer on the basis of individual cells piling up together. Well, it, it's not necessarily even individual cells piling up together, but it has, even if you say that, okay, it's a mutagenic strategy where the individual cell in the next generation decides that it's going to make two of itself. Exactly. Yeah. Where are those cells? Like that does that that doesn't that doesn't exist. It's, there's not a continuum of organisms that we have discovered that appear to yeah. grow that way, and that's so that's you, perplexing. And so to me, I'm like, okay, so is that is that a sign that there is some kind of coming together that we haven't found yet? Because prior to figuring out the endosymbiotic hypothesis, we didn't know that there was a point of coming together. And so, is there something that's still missing from our understanding of biology? where there was a second coming together that allowed for true multicellularity to emerge. But it's probably not something that's happening in the moment. Oh, the first coming together has left its footprint in a very obvious way. Mitochondria have their own DNA, and it's different from the nuclear DNA. To look for this second coming, coming together, you would expect to see something like that, but we don't. We don't. We don't see multicellular organisms that aren't just colonies, that aren't engaging in commensalism. We don't see them having different DNA. Now, there are some peculiar uh, exceptions to that. Um, There are um, chimera um, in which two eggs sort of merge together and make only one living being. Cats have that, a cat that's black to the left and Mm. and ginger to the right. You can have that. Um, But this this is just a sort of a coming together of what were originally very related different organisms in the same womb um there's a there's don't... a lot of hybridization that happens in biology that we're just starting to figure out like we have this idea of species as being true distinct separations between uh different beings and we draw this line in the sand that says that everybody to the left is one species to the right is another and they can't reproduce and we're starting to discover that those delineations aren't really true or accurate Firm. Or firm. Oh, and it's so, a continuous, of course, yeah. And so there does seem to be some kind of coming together of two multicellular organisms that then produce a third that is unlike either one. Well, a chimera cat is still a cat that can reproduce. Sure, but if you if you cross like uh there's this one guy I've been talking to a lot. He believes that uh, it's possible to have like dog-cow hybrids. And he he has a lot of anecdotal evidence and he's still like working out the genetic testing of this. But the idea that you could have 
diverse species coming together to produce something new is entirely possible? Does it throw a if it, let's say for the sake of argument that it is possible? Does it change how you would how you would construct this? That you oh, can have it, two totally different organisms come together? It, it it's certainly possible. We have the ligers. Uh, we have mules. Uh, um, the, the, uh, They're there characterized by infertility, though. Huh? They're characterized by infertility, though. So in order for this to become something that actually propagates forward, you have to create yeah, yeah. a hybrid that's that's fertile. Yeah, but I think the point you are using is whether they can come together. Whether they, they are fertile or not, maybe is not as applicable to, to, to the point we're trying to, the point in contention here. Do I, do I acknowledge that two multicellular organisms can come together in a way that makes the boundaries between the two ambiguous? Of course I do. Uh, Siamese twins are examples of that. It's two distinct organisms, even distinct uh, DNA, very related but distinct, to sep partly separate minds, but not completely separate. There are instances of a Siamese twin feeling the taste uh, that is in the mouth of the other. It depends on how, how tight, uh, tightly connected they are. But you can still discern the two. It's two unitary organisms that got scrambled. But fundamentally, they are two. The chimera cat, uh, you can even see which side is what, mm. uh, because it looks uh, uh, different. Um, so I do think that things that start as fundamentally unitary and separate organisms at some point during growth can get scrambled together. Why do I think that? Well, because it's empirically a fact. Uh, I would be just an idiot to, to deny what is an empirical fact. But the question here is one of principles. That's why I kept on emphasizing that they were fundamentally and in principle two organisms that got scrambled together during growth. They are not a unitary organism from a fundamental perspective. They were two, and they got scrambled. The fundamental point that I'm trying to make is that at that fundamental level, what is one organism, suppose it's not scrambling with anything else, that one organism is unitary and not compound. Now, unitary organisms can get scrambled with one another, but each of the unitary organisms fundamentally is not compound. It's not fundamentally already a scrambling of multiple cells. It has not been assembled in an assembly line. It has created internal complexification and differentiation through applying fractally the one template it knew it, it knows how to be, which is a cellular template. You see what I mean? I had the same discussion with Michael, um, I forgot his name, biologist from Harvard. So we were having that same uh, discussion uh, the other day. And, um, and the point he made was similar to yours. He said, well, I can, I can start with two separate unitary organisms and I can scramble them. Yeah, sure, I'm, I'm sure that is possible, but that doesn't give us an answer to the question, what is each of the unitary organisms you started with? What are they fundamentally? Are they fundamentally compound or are they fundamentally unitary? 
my claim is they are fundamentally unitary. And yes, you can scramble two fundamentally unitary things. That doesn't tell us that the things you scrambled to begin with were not unitary. You see what I mean? I see what you mean, but it becomes an evolutionary argument because then you start to have to introduce time because you have to ask, okay, well, so if this is a unitary organism, was it always a unitary organism or was there a point of scrambling that induced it to become something that was unitary, stable for long enough for me to then pick up the experimental tools to be able to scramble them together? And so, let's take, okay, go ahead. Let's take asexual reproduction. Um, what is the moment in time when that organism was already scrambled? Well, so we, let's say something like yeast, budding reproduction. The okay. moment of scrambling for the yeast probably has to go back pretty far in order to be able to actually start talking about what makes us a cell. Like, I don't know enough about the deep evolution of yeast, so I have to spin it all the way back to the beginning and say, there must be a scrambling in order to produce the cell to begin with, because you have to have all of these disparate parts that come together to produce a unit that acts as one. Otherwise, you just have, you have nucleic acid over here, you have proteins over here, you have membranes over here. There has to be a process of these disparate parts to come together because we haven't figured out a way yet to, within a single reaction vessel, produce all of these things in in one moment that is just genesis. Okay, you are trying to, when you say scramble at that level, you, you, you are alluding to, to abiogenesis, the, the moment when non-life became life. Mm. That's the scramble um, because you're scrambling non-living things. But the point where you were discussing is the scramble of already living things, which is the difference between unicellular organisms and multicellular organisms. What's the difference between a multicellular organism and a unicellular one? Can we speak of the multicellular one as being a compound organism as opposed to the unicellular one, which is uh, undeniably unitary? So the whole discussion is already after abiogenesis. Uh, I guess the, you extrapolated it to before abiogenesis, which is a very fun discussion to have, but it's not what we were talking about. That, that That's the only point I'm trying to make. That's fair. Okay, so then let's say that you look at the genome of the yeast and you realize that the genome of the yeast is actually an assembled genome. Like, let's say, I don't know enough about the genome of the yeast. But if you look at it and you do a genetic analysis and you realize that, okay, so these parts appear to be related to these organisms and these parts appear related to these organisms. And so there's an evolutionary moment where you had two bacteria or funguses that came together to mix their genomes to produce something that behaves as the yeast. And it was such a powerful mixture that now you have an organism that emerges from that that you can call yeast. But it's, it seems entirely plausible that the evolutionary path, especially when you get down to bacteria, like there's not a clear evolutionary tree that we can retrace to say, okay, this is what the uh, path from the last universal common ancestor was to even the most simple bacteria that we have today. Because 
they they're so promiscuous in their trading of genes and yeah, yeah. and everything. Look, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to patronize you at all in what I'm, don't worry, I'm going don't to worry. say, because I will look like one of those constipated analytic philosophers that tries to be so precise in the way they apply concepts. No, I, I love but, it. I love but, it. But in this case, it's important that we have conceptual clarity. The scrambling of DNA, yes, I understand how the word scrambling can be applied to different segments of the DNA having different evolutionary histories. You could have a virus carrier that implants DNA from something else um, in a cell that becomes incorporated in the DNA of that cell and then starts its own evolutionary branch. Uh, so you can have scrambling of the DNA. But we are using now the word scrambling in a different sense than we were using before. The scrambling we were talking about is when different living cells come together to form a multicellular organism like in uh, um, chimeric uh, cats or Siamese twins. So it, it, the word applies colloquially to both, but we mean entirely different things. In one case, it's how the DNA code got mixed up through whatever vectors uh, happened in the, during evolutionary history. But the point we were discussing is what is the nature of multicellular organisms? Are they formed when multiple cells come together and, quote, scramble to form a multicellular organism? Or are they fundamentally unitary uh, and they simply grow through mitosis, through a recursive application of the same templates to internal differentiation? So the scrambling in one case is not the scrambling on the other, um, if you know what I mean. Even if the DNA of a cell has been evolutionarily scrambled, because of the evolutionary history of that species, because of you know, virus, viral intervention or something akin to what happened with uh, mitochondria, which I don't think is, is plausible because otherwise we would see a different DNA there and we don't. The scrambling of that DNA is a different process than, than the discussion about the nature of multicellular organisms. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean... I guess the, the what I would what I would say to that is th that I would need to understand better the asexual reproduction of a multicellular organism because that's a pretty rare case. I think I know of like nematodes that do that, but it's oh, a it's a very, very particular organisms. I hmm? think even snakes are able uh, are capable of that. There there are many high end. Sort of, of high asexual animal. reproduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can happen. I think even some mammals. Uh, th th there, there are several cases. It's not the favorite strategy, but uh, in in dramatic environmental circumstances where finding a mate is impossible, it it, it can happen in pretty pretty evolved animals. Yeah, yeah. I think it they just happen. express both sexual organs. If I'm not mistaken. Which which would be the same path towards multicellularity that it is in a fertilized zygote, which is that you have the two kinds within one organism and they come together and to produce the same sort of, there's, there's a moment of mixing to create the single entity that then grows and differentiates. And so what I was referring to was not even an instance of uh, hermaphroditism. It, it, it was just animals that in principle reproduce sexually uh, that can uh, express uh, asexual cloning, basically, 
in in difficult environmental conditions. So they don't need to have both body parts. Uh, really? Yes. So like snakes just like can... break in half, and there's two snakes all of a sudden. I I don't remember the exact instances, but it has been in the news several times in recent years that uh, under severe environmental conditions, this can happen. I think to some reptiles and amphibians. You you can look it up. I'm sure you will. You, you yeah, can we'll find it. I'll I'll, yeah. I'll look into it. I think that it's a it's a fascinating question. But so for me to be able to to keep this as something that that I read into, it's basically the question is this: What is the difference between the coming together of individual cells to create an aggregate that behaves together, where the cells remain distinct from one another, versus the true multicellularity, which is that one cell differentiates into the panoply of structures that we see as multicellularity. Well, one case, in one case, you have a colony. In the other case, you have an organism. So it, uh, is a Portuguese man of war a multicellular organism? The standard reply is it, it is not. It's a colony of different organisms. Is a coral a multicellular organism? The standard answer is that it's not. It's a colony of polyps. So somehow in biology, we know how to make that distinction. Otherwise, we wouldn't be making that distinction. Uh, the polyps in a coral, they, start, they, they, they are aggregates. The same thing in a Portuguese man of war. Cells in those cases do come together and pile up on top of one another. Uh, but in the case of a Multi true multicellular organism, everything starts with one cell, which then divides, creates internal complexification. So it, 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 you see that in the history of the organism. How was it formed? By cells crawling towards one another and piling up together, or by inner differentiation and growth? And, and that, I think, is, is what allows us to make the distinction. And in the case of the sperm and the egg, or other examples you may take, even when two different organisms somehow interacted and scrambled their DNA, they didn't become an aggregate at that point. They, they became one cell, a zygote. They didn't pile up together. They, they literally merged into a unitary organism. So that coming together, it's not an instance of colony formation because the original organisms vanished for the sake of a new single-celled unitary organism. And that's your starting point. From that point on, true multicellular organisms, they form through the inner complexification of the original zygote. And that's not what you see with Portuguese men of war or, or coral, uh, coral reefs. They, they, they are formed by different organisms, literally, coming together and piling up on top of one another. And what do you build on the back of this distinction? That we, despite being multicellular organisms, are unitary and not compound. While a uh, Portuguese man of war is truly compound because it was assembled. It didn't grow. The coral was assembled through polyps coming together. It didn't grow. But a polyp is unitary. A human is unitary. Multicellularity does not imply a fundamentally compound being. 
because cells in a multicellular organism are not parts. They are internal structures that have grown through internal differentiation, a form of differentiation that is fractal. It's the recursive application of the same template, just like fractals uh, are. Why? Because the original unitary single cell only knew how to be a single cell, so it can only create structure by practically reproducing, reapplying that template that it knows how to be to itself recursively. And do you think so, that... Oh, go ahead. So uh, the point I'm trying to make is there is a fundamental difference between a colony, a Portuguese man of war, and a human being. You can find many cells in both, but in one case, the cells are parts, and in the other case, the cells are not parts. That's the point I'm trying to, to make. And what is the significance of them being parts or not parts? True parts may have private conscious in their life of their own. Different coral polyps may have private consciousnesses of their own. Stinger cells in a Portuguese man of war may have a private conscious in their life distinct from the floaters. But my liver cells do not have private conscious in their life distinct from my own. Because there are no liver cells. There are no neurons. These are all segments of a painting that we normally, nominally, in other words, purely epistemically, trace and give a name to so we can describe the thing. But then we forget that the names we apply to different segments of the one unitary painting are just that. They are just names that get different words, neurons, liver cells, kidney cells. And then we forget that this, this, these are just names and we start thinking of them as true parts and therefore raising the question, is there anything it is like to be my liver cell? And my point is this question is absurd because we are in language turning the liver cell into a proper part, mm. which it is not. It's just a few brushstrokes of a painting. We carve them out from the whole nominally by convention because it facilitates communication, facilitates description, facilitates modeling. But they, they didn't come from different parts of the world and piled up together. They are not parts. They are just recognizable fractal templates of a process of inner differentiation of what is fundamentally a unitary organism. So there is nothing it is like to be a neuron in Bernardo's head because there are no neurons. Talk of a neuron is nominal. It's just for convenience. There is only Bernardo, a unitary organism, just as he was unitary when he was a single-celled zygote without neurons, without liver cells. Nothing fundamentally changed from that point to now, 50 years later. All that happened was internal differentiation through a recursive fractal application of a template. So my cells are not parts. They are not entities. They, they don't exist. There is only me. But I have a certain structure that can be more conveniently described if we carve out these nominal boundaries between different parts of this structure, different segments of this structure, and give them names. 
But then we forget that this is just a language game. And we start thinking of those cells that form me as true parts, as if I had been born when I don't know how many trillion cells crawled towards one another and piled up on top of one another in an assembly line. That's not what happened. That's not the history of me. You see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, to I totally get I, I I fully understand the distinction that you're making now. And I appreciate the, the importance of the distinction. And so then the the question to put the bow on it is... If looking at the individual parts as parts is useful for, say, what doctor to go to when something is broken, then what is the utility of treating it as not being differentiated and as being an entire whole? What does it, what does it allow you to do downstream of that unification? Uh, I'll, I'll mention just the most glaring examples but the, 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 there are many subtle examples but um, we routinely talk of the placebo effect mm. it's not in dispute it's not polemical the effect exists we know it happens we also know it's getting stronger and this is a big problem for pharmaceutical companies because to approve a medicine you have to prove that you are x percent better than the sugar pill and the sugar pill is getting better so it's getting more and more difficult to approve new medicines. Beyond the empirical recognition that the effect exists and is phenomenally strong, we do not have a mainstream biology and account for it. Why? Because we think in terms of proper parts. We forget that the parts are just nominal. They are, it's a language game. And we start treating cells and, and tissues and organs as actual proper parts. On the basis of this pattern of thinking, thinking in terms of parts, the placebo effect is confounding. Why would there be such an effect? I mean, we know that uh, there is placebo effect even associated with knee surgery. When your knee, when you get old and your knee uh, suffers um, I have a Dutch word in my mind, but I'm failing to translate it now. Degradation. Um, degradation. A very mechanical thing. Um, you know, the, the lubrication in your knee joint uh, gets damaged. Um, bone and tendons get damaged. A very mechanical thing. You would expect that the placebo effect would have nothing to do with it. But it turns out, research was done, people who had debilitating knee pain and could no longer walk, um, they would get uh, 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 free uh, knee surgery if they accepted the conditions of participating in a study, no details given. And uh, half those people received actual knee surgery to repair the joint. The other half, they only received the three little cuts for endoscopic surgery, but there was no intervention. So it was just three skin cuts and stitches. Nothing else. No intervention, no surgery, no cleaning, no correction, nothing. No repair, nothing. The people who received fake surgery showed uh, um, significant clinical, clinical improvements to the point that two of them, and this, this was uh, talked about a few years ago, two of them, even after being told they didn't receive surgery, they did not believe. Because they said, well, before I couldn't even walk. Now, now I can go for a run. I can, you know, I can play sports. Of course I received surgery. You mixed up your files. You don't know what you're talking about. 
So how can something that is in principle here, belief, affect very mechanically something all the way down there in your knees? If you think in terms of proper parts, this is very tricky. You start having to think in terms of signaling, chemical signaling of some sort or some nervo effect, uh, um, nerve effect and some feuds. Uh, it gets very complicated, if at all possible. But if you think of the human organism as a unitary entity that is not made of proper parts, then of course the placebo effect makes sense. You're dealing with a whole. We are delighted to announce that Demysticon 2024, our very first scientific conference, is officially launched. And you can buy tickets right now at the link in the description and also in the link that is up in either this corner or this corner. We are going to gather in Austin, Texas on April 7th and 8th of 2024 for two days of talks on consciousness, mythology, archaeology, solar physics, hypnosis, and much, much more. Buy tickets now up at this link. You are creating, you're applying an influence here, but because we are a whole, an influence here can have an effect everywhere because there are no parts. We, we are not a car that was assembled. Um, another example of the placebo effect, even when the patient knows he's not getting medicine, it can still work. Uh, you can treat warts, skin warts caused by viruses. Nothing psychosomatic at all. Viruses on the skin, on the surface, on the epi epidermis. You can treat skin warts effectively with uh, uh, hypnosis or talk therapy. It's it's in the annals of uh, of annals of uh, of a medicine. That's it's right there. Crazy. Um, so these are the examples of what could be done if we would truly take to heart the empirical fact that human beings are holes and not mechanisms made of proper parts, what we could accomplish if we were to buy into this reality and then act accordingly. In other words, develop therapies accordingly. Develop therapies without making the assumptions that we are kind of cars that were assembled somewhere, made of proper parts. Because right now, nobody is using the placebo effect. Nobody is leveraging it. It's not even ethical to leverage it because it would imply staging something to the patient. Lying. Mm. Which is what shamans have done throughout history the great effect. This stage something. It's all bullshit, but it doesn't matter. It has an effect, a psychological effect. But the psychological effect is a physical effect because we are not made of parts. It, it, this is not a part separate from my knees or my liver or my kidneys. It's one integrated whole. So if you apply an effect anywhere in that whole, if you apply an influence anywhere in that whole, you can have an effect anywhere in it because because it is a whole. It's not made of parts. What new avenues of treatment would we open up if we would just acknowledge this very simple, empirically undeniable understanding that we are not an assemblage of parts. We are wholes. Then 
all kinds of new degrees of freedom would open for the very pragmatic empirical development of therapies. Therapies that would use all those degrees of freedom in, instead of constraining itself artificially because of the way you use language. It's absurd. But anyway, the, just one example. I mean, I think that they're really powerful examples. I pulled up the, uh, I mean, one of many placebo studies on uh, knee surgeries. And so they tested in this one 180 patients. And uh, there were no differences between the placebo group where they got the fake surgery and the group that got the real surgery. Which is... Medicine. Medicine has been the application of placebo until the middle of the 19th century. That was all there was to medicine. And somehow we abandoned that because of our silly reductionist uh, thinking. I mean, I am a reductionist as well, but there is reasonable reductionism and silly reductionism. <laughs> to think of us as an assemblage of parts is just silly reductionism. It, it flies in the face of empirical evidence. I mean, it's fascinating because I'm looking at the, um, uh, there's a New England Journal of Medicine study about this. And so they're looking at the, the relative pain scale that changes. And what I see in the chart is not the placebo is better than the, the surgery. It's just that neither the surgery nor the placebo really work. Like there's a small, there's a decrease of, you know, on a scale of zero to a hundred in terms of pain, self-reported pain goes from 65 to 55. So there's a dip Look, for we both. do knee surgery. There is a reason why people are receiving knee surgery every day, and that has been so for years. I don't know which specific study you're looking at, but if the point you're making is that knee surgery doesn't work, now we are talking about something entirely else, uh, which of is course, why course, we do then knee surgery at all. <laughs> why, do, why does my insurance company pay for it if I want to have it tomorrow? <laughs> that's that's um, an entirely different conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, even if you don't like this particular example, look at placebo effect in general. And there are myriad examples, myriad examples. Um, one would think that placebo effect should apply only for mind-related things, psychosomatic illnesses or mental illnesses, because you know it's a mind effect on the mind that sounds very reasonable. And indeed, that's very strong. We know that um, SSRIs are about only 2% better than the sugar pill when it comes to alleviating depression and anxiety. But the thing about placebo studies is that it's not only about mind-related stuff. It's about very physical stuff, skin warts. It's about that and many other things that you would say have nothing to do with mind. So, yeah, have a broader look at it. Don't look at only one specific study and you will always find studies that will say no no this placebo doesn't work of course you can find studies that will refute anything in any science the question is what does the aggregate of the studies what what consensus does the aggregate leads uh, one to and the aggregate consensus today is that placebo is pretty strong it's real it's not uh, it's not polemical anymore it's not in dispute 
I mean, I think that there is something that runs beyond mechanism. And in order for it to run beyond mechanism, we have to explore the other parts of life and existence. And medicine is one of those places where we can do that because we create tests where we say, okay, intervention versus fake intervention, what happens? And we can point to it and we can... Why do you suspect that there's no mechanism underpinning that? It's not a physical mechanism in the pure sense of the bullet target strategy of medicine, which is that we take this pill or we give you this physical intervention where, you know, like in the in the case of uh, the knee surgery. Or like the they, warts. Or the, the warts is trickier The warts, me. I mean, there still must be some sort of chemical communication going on at the end of the day. I mean, it just seems like there's. Even though we don't understand the mechanism, there must be mechanisms still. Yeah, like do you do you buy that there is? I mean, this gets into the interesting border between substrate and form, and this idea that you have with the analytic idealism that the form is somehow precedes the substance or the substrate. Like, isn't isn't aren't these fields these conscious fields are somehow fu- fundamental in your conception of nature? Okay. Under analytic idealism, all there is is a field of subjectivity. Consciousness is not created. It's that within which everything happens, transpires. Um, Your question depends on how we define mechanism. Um, Broadly defined, if if, if I use the word mechanism in the sense of dynamics and regularities in, in nature's behavior, the dynamics of nature's behavior, the dynamics of nature's expression, then of course everything flows according to some kind of mechanism, some identifiable dynamics that can be described. So it, I would be not surprised at all if you would find these dynamisms um, correlated with the placebo effect, because the placebo effect as an effect is something that happens, and anything that happens is a dynamism so there will be an identifiable dynamics describable dynamics underlying the effect because that's what the effect is it's the result of that dynamism and, th- and that's um, a fundamentally material dynamism it seems like, uh, right? no it's no a fundamentally a cause and effect chain of some material actors acting upon one another yeah that, that's where i would defer from from the mainstream the mainstream sees the physical dynamics as causal and and the mental dynamics as an epiphenomenon. Um, I don't see things that way. I think only mental dynamics are causative. And physical dynamics are what those mental processes look like when observed from across a dissociative boundary. In other words, brain activity is not what causes experience. Brain activity is what dissociated private inner experience looks like when observed from the outside. Physical stuff is the representation, the appearance of processes that are fundamentally mental. And of course, this reinterpretation of the relationship between physicality and mentation, in which physicality now becomes appearance and mentation becomes causally effective, that reinterpretation suddenly 
makes the placebo effect entirely reasonable, consistent. They just seem inseparable to me. Like there's a feedback loop there. You know, you can't uh, exist outside of your body. Like you're married to the physical processes. If I want to affect something in the room, I have to use my arm to push the desk or, or whatever I want to manipulate. So I, I do have to work within the physical confines. Like the substrate matters at the end of the day very much. And it's what I, my mental activity is using in that sense to mm. affect the physical world or to affect any real world that's a dualist uh, it's a dualist intuition and i sympathize with you because that's what we inherent and that's what we that's what is bashed into our heads throughout our lives in the western world Uh, i will offer you a different perspective Um, instead of thinking of two different things physical stuff and mental stuff and the mental stuff needs the physical stuff in order to have a a causal influence into the world instead of thinking these dualistic terms think of physicality as appearance and mentation as thing in itself we are obviously separate from the rest of the world the rest of the world is not constituted by my thoughts my wishes my fantasies i cannot change the world merely by wishing it to be different i cannot change the outcome of the war in Ukraine by making morning affirmations. And the world will still be going on after I am no longer here. The existence of the world outside my individual mind does not require the presence of my individual mind to be the case, to exist. So there is an external world. My point is the external world is also mental, just like my thoughts are outside your individual mind and my thoughts are still mental. My thought would still be here even if you were not there. And my thoughts will not change purely because of your morning affirmations. From your perspective, my thoughts are objective. But inherently, my thoughts are subjective. That's their essence, even though they appear to be objective from your perspective. Now, this separation between us and the world under analytic idealism is the result of a a dissociation in this one subjective uh, uh, field that nature is that's what accounts for the difference between my inner mental processes and the mental processes of nature out there and that's why i cannot change the mental processes that constitute nature at large just by changing my inner mental processes the latter are dissociated from the former and therefore cannot directly causal causally influence the former they are separated by a dissociative boundary now your physical body is what this dissociative process looks like. So think of physicality as appearance, as what a dissociated mental complex in in nature looks like. It looks like your body. Now, to influence the outside world beyond the boundaries of the dissociation, you have to apply an influence to the dissociative boundary, right? Because you cannot cut across the boundary. So if you want to influence the world outside, it has to be through the boundary or through the states of a Markov blanket. There is a way to mathematically uh, formalize all this. Now, what does the boundary look like? Well, it looks like your skin. So to have an effect in the world, you have to move your skin. That doesn't mean that you're using physical means to have an effect. It only means that the mental dynamics that you will be engaging in 
look like a body moving in a physical world. The physical world and the body are appearances of mental processes, one of them dissociated from the other. The one that is dissociated from the rest of the world appears to your observation as your body. That's what it looks like. I think, that, inside, I think that I draw the lines a little bit differently, though. It's not like a mind-body duality. It's more just like body and motion of bodies, right? Like everything can be traced. Like you either have a static body, like a rock. It's not, you know, in some context or the table or even a protein. And then it goes into motion, which is then used to affect change of the location of that body, essentially. And so all that, I mean, not to, I'm not trying to demean mental activity at all, but it is in some sense can be boiled down to the motion of bodies as well. Because obviously, if you explode the brain, you don't have any more mental activity anymore because you no longer have the ability for those physical interactions to proceed. You can't drive the motion of the atoms, you know, to produce the electric currents necessary or whatever it is. And so you're still thinking in dualist terms. Am I? I mean, it's just motion. It's just actors and actions. That's all. Now, what you're thinking in the following terms. I will my arm to move, and that mental will somehow has an effect on my physical arm, and my arm moves. So the movement of my arm is a cause of my intention to move. Sorry, it's an effect of my intention to move. And my intention to move is the cause of the physical movement of my arm. So well, I think process... it's even deeper, though. I think that the arm is moving because of literally atoms moving around inside of your brain. That's how we describe the appearances. We describe the appearances in terms of atoms. Look, the, one way to think of it is cause-effect. A mental cause has a physical effect. My arm has moved. There are lots of problems with this because... One, we are separating mentation from physicality, and if we separate them, how can one have a causal influence on the other? That's yeah, the interaction yeah. problem of dualism. Another way to think about it that doesn't run into these problems at all is the following. My arm movement is what the mental process, the intention of moving my, my, the intention of moving my arm, that intention looks like an arm moving. It's not an effect. It's how the thing looks like. Mm. The only the, thing going on is the intention that I describe as moving my arm. The movement of the arm is what that intention looks like. It's the appearance of the mental process. But the mental process fundamentally has a mechanistic aspect to it, right? I feel like neuropsychologists and so forth have, have done ample work to to, let's say, destroy little pieces of brains so that they, they aren't capable of moving the arm, let's say. Okay. And so, so fundamentally, the action and the ability to even plan that action or exercise it still have this machinery below them, for lack of a better word. Mechanism is how we describe and make sense of the appearances. When things appear to you and all you have is the appearance of the thing, then you think in terms of the language of the appearances. And when you describe the appearances, you think you will be describing the thing in itself because all you have access to is how the thing appears to you. Yeah? Now, where does dualism 
try to come back in. It tries to come back in, just like you said, if a neurosurgeon goes into my brain and pokes around with an electrode, I will experience different things. If, God forbid, he slices something wrong in my brain, I will be unable to experience certain things, like smell will be gone. Or we don't need to go to, to a, a, a surgery scenario. If you prick my arm with a needle, I feel pain. If I drink a glass of alcohol, my experience changes. So in the traditional way of thinking, you would say, well, obviously, there is a physical cause and a mental effect. Therefore, physicality precedes mentality. Mentality is epiphenomenal because the arrow of causation goes from the physical cause to the mental effect. It's again dualist thinking. Let me describe the same thing to you again from a different perspective. When I drink a glass of wine, that physical glass of wine is what a mental process beyond my dissociative boundaries look like. All physical stuff is the appearance of mental stuff when this mental stuff is observed across a dissociative boundary. So not only the atoms that constitute my body, my brain, are the appearance of my mental processes, the atoms and fields that constitute the world at large, too, are the appearance of mental processes in the world at large. So there is no physical glass of wine. There is no physical needle that pricks my arm. The needle and the glass of wine are the appearances of mental processes that I bring into my dissociative boundary by drinking the glass of wine or pricking my skin with the needle. Those external mental processes are now brought inside my dissociative conscious inner life, and they have a mental-to-mental -mental effect. And therefore, I feel the pain or I get drunk. When the surgeon takes a scalpel to my brain, what's happening is that the mental process that looks like a scalpel is aggressively interfering with, an, with another mental process that looks like my brain. So the causation is mental to mental, but we can only access it through appearances. So we describe it as a scalpel slicing into a brain or a needle uh, a piercing a skin or a glass of wine being drunk. But what is actually happening is that processes beyond the dissociative boundary that constitute me as an individual separate from the world, those mental processes are now being brought into my, my, my private conscious inner life. They are piercing through my dissociative boundary in their form that appears as a needle piercing through my skin or a scalpel slicing into my brain or alcohol being ingested. I'm bringing in mental effects, mental causes that were out there into me. And that, of course, has a mental effect because I brought them in. And there is a mental-to-mental -mental causation process. Mental-to-mental -mental, to mental causation is trivial. We experience it every day. Just think a bad thought and pay attention to how you feel. Man, uh, thoughts can cause emotions. Emotions can cause thoughts. Mental-to-mental -mental causation. Physical to mental causation is just mental to mental causation, which appears to observation in the form of needles, scalpels, and glasses of wine. And, and then you don't have any more interaction problem. Of course, what we call physical causes have mental effects. Why? 
because they are mental. Physicality is just the appearance of mental things in themselves. And how does the needle get defined as a mental process or the scalpel? Like, I understand the mental process of the human, and I can sort of see this, you know, I, I imagine it as this uh, kind of bubble of mental processes that are encased in this dissociative barrier, and it's like a skin upon a deeper substance. Okay, I get that. But I don't, and but that's because I can imagine the human or any other living being as having an internal state of of mind. But the needle, how does the needle have a men- how how is that represented by the same mental state? No, no, the needle is the representation of a mental state. Not the same mental states that constitute you. Whose mental we, state? Yeah, that's what I want to know. Like whose mental state creates the needle? Mental states at large, the mental states that constitute nature at large, in other words, the states of the world out there as it is in itself, the world out there beyond our individual minds as it is in itself is constituted of mental states. That's the hypothesis. So but do you, do, do you believe states, that a- actions require actors? I mean, it just seems like you're taking an action and treating it as an actor to me. Like a process is an action, any, right? Any any action requires some form of actor, but uh, we should not anthropomorphize that. Any behavior is the behavior of something. Any right. action is the action of something. Right, right. But aren't you starting any with relation? an action? Huh? Aren't you building this worldview off of action? Isn't a process no, an no. action? No, 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 no. It's no. dynamic, though. Of course it is. Uh, but all, is all dynamics are actions. Where are you going with this? Well, What's, I, what's I'm just point? I'm just trying to understand where the mind is emerging from because the mind seems like an activity to me, like an action. It requires more than one actor, like a physical actor. Well, it seems like the mind is primary. The mind is the substance. The mind it's is not the a substance, right? I mean, it doesn't. It's not a body. <laughs> so I think that, like, look, <laughs> it's not physical, <laughs> right? Exactly. And so Shiloh, Shiloh has a very very strict physical ontology. Right. Well, I, I wouldn't say that. I just, I'm just trying to understand. That's all. You know, uh, but okay, I, I, so, go ahead. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to, to describe it uh, to you. I sympathize with you because being born in a world that speaks physicalism and trying to discern another point, another point of view is very difficult because you always make unexamined physicalist assumptions. You, you think in physicalist terms, which is precisely what will prevent you from, from seeing the other perspective. It's even worse than that because, like, I did a PhD in in like hard elastic physics. You know, I mean, I, I've just learned to see the world in terms of material processes, and that doesn't make it impossible for me to see mental processes. But I, I have a hard time imagining them outside of the chain of physical causality. I guess. Can we think? Can we think in terms of states, and and try to generalize it from physical states alone? Just states, like states of activity. No. Can you can you can you conceive of can you can you conceive of static states? Well, state it would of be what? a shape, I guess. Yeah, an architecture would be a static state. A building. That's, <laughs> can you think of? <laughs> okay. So I, I, we've we've been having a lot of conversations about non-dualism, and 
it is something that we're we are very much trying to understand because much of our audience really enjoys non-dualism and it is something that is so orthogonal to the way that we see the world and this is genuinely an attempt to be able to visualize what the train of logic is like i, I know it, you okay I can, it can feel like trolling sometimes i feel like but it's yeah, not yeah, people like you are my my daily my daily fare uh, 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 it, 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 th that's the people i meet okay you did physics so the, the concept of fields in physics is very handy. It has been handy since the early 19th century, right? Yeah, I mean, I believe it's deeply flawed, though, as a fundamental actor as well at the same time. Well, but I mean, then, they're, then, they're dynamic entities, you know? I, I just, I don't think that they could be fundamental in that sense because they're dynamic. I, I'm, I'm not, okay. Then you just threw away the whole of quantum field theory. No, it's very practical. The entire foundation of Western science. It just no, 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 it's very, it's very practical, right? It's very practical. But in terms of uh, natural philosophy, I, I, I think that it's you can, of course, create all sorts of equations to manipulate reality. This is very useful in parameterized systems. You can make airplanes, rockets, uh, transistors, all of these things. But you don't have to actually have this natural understanding of what the actual atoms are necessarily doing to inflict electricity upon one yeah. another. Look, I'm I'm trying to expose you to a different perspective, but you have to meet me in the middle because if you stick to your guns, it will be impossible for you to shift your head and slant your head to the side to see the perspective I'm trying to expose you to. So I'm trying to create some form of abstraction that will allow you to let go of your commitment to physicality as fundamental, at least for the sake of argument. You, you don't need to believe what I'm trying to show you. I, I just want you to understand what is it that I am seeing so you can judge it in its own terms. Yeah? So the abstraction would be, think in terms of state. What is a state? A state is something that is the case in nature, which could be something else. A state is what nature is at this point, at this location right now, but it could be something else. It's not that something else. It is what it is now. And that what it is now is a state. States can change, and that's where dynamism comes. Now, let's forget the need to reduce states to a substrate for now. We can come back to that later. But for now, let's just think in terms of states. Nature is made of states. Whether they are physical or mental or information, informational, there are states. Things that are what they are instead of something else that they conceivably could be or could still be or could have been. Yeah? Snapshots. Yeah. I am also made of states. My, the reality of me now is a snapshot of the states of nature that constitute me. Both physicalism and analytic idealism fit with what I just said. Both acknowledge that there are external states and there are internal states, and there is a boundary between the two. Right? The difference is that under physicalism, these states are fundamentally quantitative. They have no inherent qualities. 
In other words, you can exhaustively describe a fundamentally physical state through a long enough list of the correct numbers. Mass, charge, momentum, uh, speed, um, amplitude, frequency, whatever. Under physicalism, if you provide the correct set of numbers, you will have said everything there is to say about a fundamentally physical state. Nothing will be missing. Under analytic idealism, these numbers are merely descriptions of qualities. And it is the qualities that are the states. Yeah. I'll buy that. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So under analytic idealism, mass, charge, momentum, amplitude, frequency are descriptions mm -hmm. of qualities. Mm -hmm. They are not the state. They are descriptions of the state. Mm -hmm. But I think what they're describing is fundamentally some actor doing something, some action I'll, I'll of there. some actor. Yeah, I'll get there. I'll get there. Bear, bear with me. Mm -hmm. Now, under analytic idealism, the states that constitute the world are qualitative and therefore mental. The states that constitute me are qualitative and therefore mental, and that's how we experience ourselves. If we cannot perceive our bodies, we still experience ourselves as a set of thoughts, emotions, desires, fantasies, uh, feelings of different sorts. Now, we are, we are not the world. We are separate, separated from the world. Mathematically, we can model this through a Markov blanket. In other words, there is a set of inner states, a set of external states, and then there are the states of the blanket. The states of the world can impinge on the states of the blanket. The states of the blanket can impinge on our internal states, and the other way around. Our internal states can impinge on the states of the blanket, which in turn can impinge on the states of the world. When the impingement goes from the inside out, we call them the active states of the Markov blanket. When the impingement comes from the outside in, we call them the sensory states of the Markov blanket. Under analytic idealism, the physical world is the sensory states of the Markov blanket, not the states of the world. Under analytic idealism, the physical world are the sensory states of the Markov blanket, not the states of the outside world. But it looks like the sensory states of the Markov, Markov blanket are the world for two reasons. One, their dynamics are modulated by the states of the external world. So the sensory states work as proxies for what's really happening out there. That's the first reason. The second reason is we only have the sensory states of the Markov blanket to provide us information about the world. We have no way to directly access the world because we are surrounded by the Markov blanket. That's the definition of the dissociation. Yeah? Yeah. So everything yeah, looks as though sensory states, physical states, were what's really happening out there. But no, they are encoded inferential representations of the dynamics of the external world. We can prove this mathematically. If our perceptual states mirrored the states of the external world, there would be no upper bound to our internal entropy because there is no a priori upper bound to the entropy of the world. Therefore, if we saw the world exactly as it is by mirroring the states of the world directly into our cognitive states, 
seeing the world could be deadly. We could melt into hot uh, goulash soup. That has never happened. Therefore, sensory states are encoded inferential representations of the real states of the world. What we call the numbers of physics, the quantities of physics, amplitude, charge, momentum, mass, uh, frequency, are descriptions of the sensory states. We describe the sensory states of the Markov blanket, which come together with our inner cognitive states. Uh, under information integration theory, you can't separate the two, but le let's forget this detail for now. Under analytic idealism, we describe the sensory states through physics. And the sensory states are modulated by the real external states, so they work as proxies. Therefore, through that proxy, our physical descriptions actually indirectly describe the world as it is in itself. But we are not doing this description directly. Let me try another metaphor to, to make it clear. An airplane has sensors that measure the states of the sky outside, right? The results of these measurements are represented to the pilot in the form of dial indications on a dashboard. The states of the dashboard represent the states of the sky outside, so much so that the pilot cannot ignore the dashboard or he will crash and burn. So there is a correlation between the states of the dashboard and the states of the sky outside. The dashboard represents the states of the sky in an encoded form. But we are pilots that were born inside the cockpit of the airplane, and that cockpit has no transparent windows. All we have is the dashboard. We never get to see the world as it actually is. All we have is the dashboard. The mistake we make is we take the dashboard for the sky outside. The physical world is our dashboard. We also have sensors. Retinas, if we're strict eardrums. empiricists, like from a strictly empirical scientific ontology like i think that's i think we live in a deeply empirical times as far as science is concerned and i think that that's absolutely true that that at some point you have to surrender to the idea that everything is sort of happening inside of you at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day or however you look at it but from but as you know there's been this war between empiricism and rationalism and the rationalists would probably argue that you don't really need to 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 actually depend on your senses so much as imagine based on inductively observing everything else, you know, rocks crash into each other and displace one another. Well, that same sort of thing must be going on over here as well. And so the ability of imagining, just the imagination of the mechanism is sufficient as a hypothesis for what could be happening. And in fact, should in some sense override this, you know, squishy uh, dashboard business that can kind of muck things oh. up and confuse them. Yeah. If I were not a rationalist, I would be a solipsist. Because in the absence of some line of reasoning, all I have is my own experience. And therefore, all there is is my own experience. I would be a solipsist. I, I would deny that there is something it is like to be you. I would think that you exist only insofar as what I perceive of you. But I'm not that. I'm not a solipsist. Um, I am an idealist. So it is through a line of reasoning that I grant the existence of a world beyond my perception of it, a world that you and I share. And how do I do that? By saying that although the physical world is our internal dashboard and therefore the 
physical world is private and personal and is in us and not outside, the sky outside, which modulates the dashboard, the real states of the world, they are really out there. And they do not depend on my presence, depend on my presence here to exist. Look, if there are no airplanes flying in the sky and making measurements of the states of the sky, the sky doesn't disappear. And even though we are locked into our own airplane cockpit without windows and all we have is our dashboards, we can communicate enough with the other airplanes to know that our dashboards are mutually consistent. Mm. Therefore, all of our dashboards must be modulated by real external states. We must all be measuring real external states out there. And the results of those measurements is the physical world. So the physical world is private and it's our own, but it's not the real world. The real world, the thing that we measure in order to result in the representation we call the real world, that real world is really out there and doesn't care whether we are measuring it or not. And we are all immersed in it and we cannot change its states through morning affirmations. So under analytic idealism, the real world is not physical. What does it mean for something to be not physical? Well, it means that these are states that cannot be exhaustively describable through physical quantities. Now, do these, ex states, ex these states exist? Do we have examples of states that cannot be described through physical quantities? Of course we have. What is the length in centimeters of your thought? What is the mass in kilograms of your emotion? can't describe endogenous experiential states through physical quantities. Why? Because we created physical quantities to describe perceptual states, to describe the dynamics of the dials on the dashboard. But we also have our endogenous states, just like the world out there has its endogenous states as well. Dashboard states are representations, encoded representations, of the real endogenous states of nature out there. And just like ours, they are non-physical in the sense of not being describable through physical quantities because we invented the quantities to describe the dashboard, not the thing that is measured in order for the result of measurement to be displayed on the dashboard. And, and so the thing that comes downstream of that is whether or not we have the ability, capacity, or whatever you want to call it, to imagine what is real. Or do you think that it stops at what can be physically described and real is something that is just beyond... It's like the spaghetti monster. Like, is it worth being like the spaghetti monster is moving the planets? Or do we just say, you know what, it's gravity We're... and that's, that's the limitation? It seems less supernatural than forces. <laughs> I think through reasoning, we can be fairly... Sure. And there are physicists who I respect who will disagree with what I'm about to say. And I ask for their forgiveness. Maybe I'm not far enough yet in my understanding of these things that I'm still stuck where I am now. But here's where I am now. Through reasoning, I think it's inevitable for us to, to have to infer the existence of real states beyond ourselves. I don't think solipsism stands the test of reason because it is an incredibly implausible account 
of the consistency of descriptions, interpersonal consistency of descriptions uh, that we experience. It requires a very fine-tuned level of inaccessible self-deception that is less parsimonious than to just say, well, other people who look like me are also conscious like I am, and they are describing the same world that I seem to perceive. So I think some form of realism is a necessary outcome of reasoning correctly applied. Now, there are there is a strong mathematical argument that what I just said is not necessarily true. I apologize to my friend Marcus Miller <laughs> for this, because he has proven mathematically, but I, I can't help but grant realism. There are real states of the world. The step that I make that is not mainstream is to say, those real states of the world are not the physical states. Even physics has been, has been telling us for 40 years, culminating with a Nobel Prize last year, that physical properties are the results of measurements. We cannot say that the thing that is measured is physical. But of course, there is something we did measure. So it must be real. It's just not physical. Is it coherent to say that there are things that are real and not physical? Of course it is. My thoughts are not physical in the sense that they are not describable through physical quantities. I'm not, I'm not talking about other worlds and spiritual stuff. Maybe that stuff is real, but that, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not where I'm going with this. Where I'm going with this is that the screen of my perception, which is physical, describable through physical quantities, that's just a dashboard. It's not the real world that we share. The real world that we share is non-physical, just like my endogenous inner states are non-physical. My thoughts and emotions are non-physical in the sense of not being describable through physical quantity. So it's very easy for me to imagine, to use reasoning and not empiricism, but reasoning to extrapolate my own endogenous non-physical states and say that nature at large may be constituted of states that are akin to my endogenous states. I'm not saying that nature is made of human thoughts and human emotions. There is very strong reason to say that that cannot be the case because human thoughts and emotions evolved over 4 billion years on this rock. Why would nature have the same kinds of uh, thoughts and emotions that we have? No. But at a more abstract level, my thoughts and emotions are instances of states that are not physically describable. So I can infer through reasoning that nature is also constituted of states that are not physically describable. And that when I interact with those states, or to speak technical language, when I perform a measurement or an observation, then the result of that measurement and observation will be conveyed to me in the form that we call colloquially the physical world of stuff and colors around us. And I then created numbers to describe what appears on the dashboard. Those are the equations of physics. And they do what they claim to do. They do describe reality, but indirectly through the representation of the dashboard. But again, the dashboard is modulated by the dynamics of the real states out there. So you can, in a sense, take the dashboard for the world in practice. It works in practice. A pilot that was born in an airplane cockpit without windows and learned to fly by instruments could very easily, it's very conceivable that that pilot could think that the dashboard is the world because everything happens as though it were the world. 
And he, he did not, does not experience anything other than that. We are pilots born in that airplane cockpit without windows. We take the dashboard for the world, and it works in practice for the development of technology. Where it doesn't work is in philosophy. When you start think, thinking more deeply about these things, and you realize that physics is showing us what the dashboard metaphor makes obvious, which is, if you don't measure, there's nothing on the dashboard. If you don't perform a measurement in physics, there are no physical properties. For 40 years, almost 50 now, we have repeated an experiment in more and more nuanced forms that shows that and got the Nobel Prize last year. Until you measure, there are no physical properties. Is that difficult to, under to understand under the airplane dashboard metaphor? Of course not. The dashboard shows the results of measurements. If you don't measure, the dashboard shows nothing. There is no physical world if you don't measure because the physical world is the dashboard. But the thing measured is real. It's really out there. It does not depend on measurement. It's just not physical because it's not the dashboard. It's the sky outside. We take the dashboard for the sky outside. And then in philosophy, and even in foundations of physics, and even in the neuroscience of consciousness, it goes all wrong. Because now we have to explain ourselves in terms of the dashboard. It's like a painter who paints a self-portrait and then declares him to be the self-portrait. And now he has to account for his own conscious, consciousness in terms of the patterns of pigment distribution on canvas. That's the hard problem of consciousness. We think that we are made of dashboard stuff. That's the problem. I like the, I like the symmetry of problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we do run into all kinds of problems. And I think that, that this is an accurate description of the source of those problems. I still struggle with the idea of the symmetric equivalence between the internal thought and the, the mental state of nature that is then measured to give something physical. And so I think that I, I would have to go and think about where that state of nature could emerge from. Because I think that it is possible to reason your way into what the underlying state is caused by or looks like before you measure it. Oh, yeah, it is. And I think that and that's think, kind of what Shiloh's after. I, I think it all makes sense the way that you've, def especially because of the way that you've defined physics, which is, has to do with assigned quantities and so forth. It makes sense to me because that's absolutely a mental process. Um, I think that if you define physics a little differently, then, then you probably have a different job to accomplish. Right? To, to define physics differently is to, is to have a metaphysical commitment. Yes. Um, uh, the, uh, if you want to remain purely operational and not have a metaphysical commitment, then you're bound to the definition I shared with you. If you want to define physics as the science of the world as it is in itself, right there, you're already making a metaphysical commitment that is arbitrary from a scientific perspective. And, and that's what most people actually do. Um, I, I, look, to, to go back to the, to the hypothesis you raised, um, can we infer what the world is in and of itself, uh, aside from uh, representation, aside from description? This year, I became more hopeful that, that this can be the case. Let's just frame the question first. Remember Kant, noumena, and phenomena? Mm. Noumena is things as they are in themselves, and phenomena is how things appear to us. 
under analytic idealism and the metaphors that I described to you, phenomena is the physical world. The physical world is phenomena, not noumena. The dashboard is phenomena, not noumena. The noumena is that which modulates the states of the dashboard through measurement. Physics is the science of phenomena because it's the science of perception. Even if we use instrumentation like telescopes and oscilloscopes and microscopes, we still need to perceive the output of instrumentation so everything gets filtered out through perception. That's what physics is. It's a science of phenomena as opposed to a science of introspection, like spirituality. Physics is a science of phenomena. Can we have a science of the noumena? Can we have a description of things as they are in themselves? Well, that requires rationalism because empiricism fails you. You're locked up in that airplane cockpit without windows. All you have is the dashboard. That's the limit of empiricism. But rationalism can bring us further. And I think the map has been given to us by Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer reasoned in the following way. When it comes to me, I know the will as it is in itself. In other words, I know my mental states. I know the noumena. I can also perceive the representation of my mental states in the form of my body. So my body is the phenomena corresponding to the noumena that I experience directly, my inner mental states. Yeah? And then he's, he reasoned, and I'll give modern language to it. He was talking about, he was talking in terms of mass and substance. I'll give modern language to it to be more rigorous. He reasoned the following way. My body is made of the same atoms and fields that constitute the rest of nature. So if in my case, my body is the phenomena of my noumena, and my noumena are my inner mental states or the will, and again, the phenomena of, that my body is is made of the same atoms and force fields as, this, as the rest of nature, then the rest of nature too is phenomena corresponding to noumena. The rest of nature, too, is a representation as opposed to the will. In Schopenhauer's terminology, representation is phenomena, will is noumena. So let me repeat this so, it is, so you really grasp how simple it is. I have access to my own noumena, my own mental states, and I know that my noumena appear to observation in the form of atoms and force fields that constitute my body. The same atoms and force fields constitute the rest of nature. So the rest of nature, too, is a phenomenal representation of a mental noumena. That is the key, because it gives us one part of nature in which we have access to both sides, the noumena and the phenomena. And we can establish a map between the two. We can try to create a bijective function that leads you from a noumenal state to the corresponding phenomenal state and back. I'm hoping it's a bijective function. It may not be. But some kind of coherent mapping between the two states. We can do it because when it comes to our own phenomenal states, in other words, our body, in our own noumenal states, in other words, our experiences, we have both sides of the equation. So we can create the map. And then we can extrapolate that map to segments of nature uh, for which we only have access to the phenomena and not the noumena. We can extrapolate it. How do we create this map? I think the most promising way to create this map in the world today is integrated information theory. That was um, 
created originally in the late 90s by Giulio Tononi. Christoph Koch has joined that effort. It's certainly the most theoretically advanced theory of experience, uh, of mapping between experiential states and brain states uh, that we have today. It's the only one that honors experience for what it is, as opposed to trying to reduce it to something because of some metaphysical prejudice. That mapping is still being created. You can imagine how tremendously difficult it is because we have to have very fine resolution access to all of our brain states in order to create a correct mapping. And we have to have very fine discipline introspective access to our experiential states as well. Both are very difficult. But for the past 20 years, a lot of progress has been made in integrating information theory. Some predictions have been made and proven empirically as well. So there is a lot going for it. I see IIT not as a materialist theory of consciousness. I can tell you its creators do not see it like that. And they have already come out in papers writing things that basically imply that they don't see it that way. The way I see it is that IIT provides a map between noumenal states, direct experience, and phenomenal states, physical stuff, brain states, brain activity. If we have this mapping for to create this bridge between brain states and experiences, we can extrapolate it and infer what nature at large is in itself based on the notion, Schopenhauerian notion, that nature is also made of the same atoms and force fields that constitute my brain. So we are we have good theoretical grounding to extrapolate. But isn't also it the, the organization of those atoms that gives rise to the nuministic experience in the first place? Like the particular biological organization of those atoms. Like you, I just feel like you're assuming that biological processes should be exhibited by inanimate objects as well. I, I don't understand. Why, why, okay, why do so, you feel that? Well, you're saying that because we have both a phenomenological existence and we also have a nuministic experience that all things, all bodies out there, everything in the external environment should also be, be able to be partitioned yeah. into okay. these two pieces. Look, but, um, I do think what you said, but I, I, I didn't intend to justify this based on the discussion we had today. It's impossible. I wrote 12 books about it. There is, there is a long argument, simple, but long, based not only on reasoning, but a lot of empirical evidence. Um, I tried to summarize it in a book I just finished writing, which will come out next, next year, called uh, Analytic Idealism in a Nutshell. In this discussion, I'm not trying to defend fully why I think what you just said, but you, you, you must believe me that I think this for good reasons, of very course, good yeah. uh, 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 empirical and analytic reasons. It, it, it's not an arbitrary thing. It's not an assumption. I'm not making an assumption, which was the word you used. No, this is a conclusion I arrived at, having pondered this problem from many different directions and and. And, and I'm not alone in, in this either. No, of so course. I mean, it's a huge, it's a huge, huge topic. And I'm, I've gotten a little bit closer to understanding it. I mean, of course, it's something you've written 12 books about. We've only been talking for, I think we've been talking for three hours probably now. And there's just, there's no way that we're going to 
get into every single corner of that enormous universe. I think what might make sense is when the book is published for us to read it so that we have the starting point of the analytic idealism in a nutshell and be able to... I can send it to you if you don't tell anyone, I can send it to you because the production is done. It's just marketing now. You know, when a book is formally released, it becomes old news very quickly. Mm. So that's why they hold on with the formal release in order to do the traditional marketing, you know, trying to get shelf space in bookshops and all that. Yeah, send it to us. No, no, no. Uh, Send it to us so that we have the basis for the next conversation, because I think that you're one of the best, uh, you're, you're one of the clearest thinkers that we've encountered on this so far, because there's many people that talk about non-dualism and it's very hard to really, really dig down to what it is that they're trying to say, but you approach it with the rigor of philosophy. And so you have worked through all of these things. You have defined everything clearly. You have structured the argument in such a way where when we get down to the definitions, and like Shiloh said, he's like, oh, okay, so if you define physics this way, then it all makes sense. And so I just, I want to be able to have a deeper grasp of it because I think that it is speaking to something very, very important about the world and our own experience in it and about... And the way that we study the world and the way that we manipulate the world yeah. in our favor. Yeah, absolutely. I've been in the public eye associated with non-dualism, I think because people, one, realized that there are many similarities between non-dual philosophy and what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. but also because of a personal friendship I have with uh, Rupert Spira. And we have appeared together many times so there is this association between me and non-dualism but i am pretty spiritually handicapped uh, it's very difficult to move my state of consciousness off the analytical baseline i have succeeded in doing that with major doses of psilocybin mushrooms because i needed to know that there was something else other than my baseline state of consciousness but i'm very hard anchored on this analytic state of mind. It's very difficult to move me off that. So I, I'm literally spiritually handicapped. Um, I'm, I'm a spiritual catastrophe. Uh, then, uh, I'm just, I, I, I was not born with the skills or, I don't know, uh, I, I can't get there. So I, I come at this purely from an analytical, empirical perspective and I have lived and breathed science very early on, my very first job in life was at CERN um, hmm. in the Atlas collaboration in the mid-90s. Um, so th- that's why you probably resonate with it more, because that's probably your history um, as well. Um, I have difficulties when there are spiritual people in my audience and they ask me questions that arise from very deep introspective states that I have difficulty relating with. And I, I sort of reword their question and flatten it uh, in order to make it sort of conceptually clear and of course that can be dissatisfying to them because they immediately realize ah bernardo doesn't get it and yes yes bernardo doesn't get it (laughs) no bernardo has these issues (laughs) i think it speaks to the necessity of finding someone who speaks your language to be able to understand an idea because i i have a similar experience with the spiritualist perspective where I have a very hard time grasping the substance of what is being asked or what is being wanted because perhaps I'm, I also am 
deeply resistant to a spiritual perspective of that kind. And so I just, I really, I really value the work that you're doing and the insights that you bring to the world. And I hope that you send us the book. (laughs) I would do so. An electronic uh, version. It has not been printed yet. Excellent. Yeah, maybe we'll catch up better on on the jargon and the terminology so we won't, uh, we can, we can blast through some of that and get right to the heart of matters next time we talk to you. I use no neologisms. Um, I have That's an analogy a... for neologism. <laughs> um, th- there are people who said, oh, Bernardo, you should call your philosophy. What was that again? Oh, I forgot. Some kind of cosmopsychism. And I was like, there is a perfectly good word <laughs> that has been used for five centuries. Why will I do that? So no, you find no neologisms with me. I'm not a Heidegger. No, uh, no neologisms. Um, there will be some jargon because jargon is sometimes just so incredibly handy. Um, but even in those cases, I define it at first usage. So you, you, you see what I mean. Excellent. I look forward to it. All yeah, right. man. It's, been, it's always illuminating talking to you. Thank you so much for coming by. You're very welcome. You're very sincere uh, hosts. Um, you're not just interviewing me. You're trying to grasp it. You're trying to occupy my perspective in the world as much as I'm trying to occupy yours. That's That makes it uh, much more dynamic and, and interesting as opposed to just a list of questions that you thought of in advance. Yeah, we're just trying to understand the world, same as anybody. <laughs> so that's why we do this. And, we, and then we bring everybody along. So yeah, thanks to everybody who's listening for being part of this too. There's a lot of people who are trying to understand how the world works. And yeah, thanks for contributing. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have a great rest of your night, sir. Bye, Bernardo. You too. Take care. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.